Welcome to a special crossover episode. I'm here with Sam Biagetti of Historians Planning Podcast. And Hi. I'm Jeff Schulenberger. I'm Sam Biagetti, who creates Historians Planning. We have been corresponding about a book, David Graeber and David Wengro's The Dawn of Everything. And that's what we'll be talking about today, kind of trying to offer a broad critical assessment of it from our sort of dual perspective. I like Graeber and Wengro. I am not a historian. Sam is a historian. And I'm, you know, generally as the podcast, you know, title and sort of concept implies sort of generally sympathetic to sort of outsiders making illicit forays into other disciplines and things like that. Um, So I don't have any, uh, you know, critique of a sort of historical project undertaken by an anthropologist and archaeologist, respectively, and in principle. But as we'll get into, I think there are ways that a a historian's perspective on what they're trying to do is is quite valuable and necessary. So in any case, thanks, Sam, for being willing to uh, talk about this and for, uh, you know, taking up my suggestion of reading this kind of long and (laughs) somewhat rambling book. Yeah, thank you. It was it was Jeff's idea to have this uh, major crossover event. I think it's great because I love outsider theory, and I people were asking about this book anyway. So I figured it it was it would be a good experience to have a two way conversation about it. Yeah, and I mean, so one I, I suppose one reason I immediately thought of you is that the the sort of concept of your podcast is a historian tells you why everything you know is wrong. If I'm getting that. Right. Prison, correct. <laughs> so, I mean, clearly this this project is conceived of in similar terms to that, right? It's it's a kind of strong revisionist project, right? That tries to offer a fundamental reassessment of certain, assum- not just sort of specific historical claims, but assumptions underlying the way that a great deal of history is is done. Yeah. And, and I would add also whole fields like economics, I think, are built on sort of primordial myths that they're setting out to debunk for, for better or for worse. Right. And this sort of continues in the tradition of Graeber's previous major book, Debt, which is also a sort of historical narrative about, you know, the origins of debt, money, you know, economics and various other things, which, which, you know, the main sort of selling point of debt was he, he goes back to this myth of barter, right? This idea that sort of before you had money, you just had people kind of awkwardly figuring out how to trade uh, vaguely equivalent commodities with each other. And that this, you know, if, if you read sort of standard economic textbooks, this is adduced as the reason why sort of money has to be invented, right? So there's a sense of inevitability because the other ways in which people might exchange goods are are just too awkward and cumbersome and therefore, you know, some more efficient means of exchange has to be devised. So this, you know, debt is basically taking aim at that set of assumptions. And I think, again, and I don't want to get too involved with discussing that book, which is a whole other can of worms, but, you know, I think that's a fundamentally very valuable and salutary project. Um, And I think he is successful at undermining this basic assumption of economics, right? That, that in order to have sort of, you know, sustainable economies of exchange, you have to have money, 
right? Because basically his critique yeah. is premised on the notion that in fact, you know, it, in anthropology, it's, it's sort of recognized that you have the gift economy, right? That, that you have modes of exchange that don't require a sort of um, exact equivalence, but instead are, are embedded in, in social relationships, right? Yeah, and I currently have just read the first half of Debt. I have not read all of it. And I think it's the full title is Debt, the First 5,000 Years. So maybe I've only gotten about the first 2,500 years. But it strikes me there, there are similarities, certainly in style. Reading Debt, I said, oh, okay, those weird quirks in the style of Dawn of Everything must be Graeber. <laughs> um, but the the strength of it is similar, which is, I think, tackling you know, fundamental sort of assumptions about how social structure is built and trying to reveal how they are not just natural results of the fundamental nature of the world. They are the results of power, of the exercise of power. And, you know, money, you can think of money. Money has its social power because the image of the ruler is stamped upon it, right? And there's a deep connection between sovereignty and money and there and I think Graeber and Wengrow are trying to kind of broaden their attack to sort of the whole idea of social structure and hierarchy and the state and show how those are all kind of the results of the exercise of power and not just natural predetermined results of the natural progression of humankind right yeah and you know, so this, right, it, there's sort of this general critique of determin- of sort of deterministic accounts of societal evolution. So that the interest is in saying, essentially, which, you know, again, I think is, is usually a worthwhile pursuit is to, to take something that is, that is simply assumed to be the inevitable outcome of, of certain prior historical developments and argue that in fact, it did not have to be that way, right? And that there is there is a greater variety and range of possible, you know, modes of social organization than, than is usually assumed, right? So again, you know, with debt, this really starts with thinking about money. And as you're saying, this, this book, I think, I mean, it begins with a question about inequality but and and in their accounts of how the project evolved, it begins it begins with them trying to think together about this question of inequality, which is both what what also animated Graeber in, in debt, but also um, his involvement in the Occupy movement and things like that. But at the same time, is is a sort of fundamental question that's raised at the kind of outset of modern thought, right? Which is you know in the Enlightenment, you had this concern explored by Rousseau and others with the origin of inequality, right? How, how do societies become unequal? And so as, as we'll perhaps get into, they sort of end up deciding that this is the wrong question, but in a sense, they're returning to this fundamental question that kind of stands at the outset of modern philosophical, anthropological, historical, and economic thought, right? And trying to not only offer a different answer, but sort of question some of its fundamental premises, right? And and, and and this is, you know, to put it simply something like the basic idea that there is some moments that is defined by equality, which is then succeeded by some sort of fall from grace and the emergence of inequality is, mm-hmm. is the, the narrative, the, the, the sort of narrative structure that they want to take issue with. Yeah, well, and they 
want to reframe this debate and they say that, well, this obsession with how we went from an perfect, equal utopian past as primitives and then went into this unequal, urban, civilized world, that that is like a repetition of the myth of of Eden and, and the literal fall of man. And I think that they... I mean, I don't know how far we want to get into evaluating the book, but I think that they they make that case pretty strongly. And a lot of their strength is just that they have been exposed to so much current research and scholarship, and they're kind of enthusiastically drawing in all of these examples and counterexamples and really, I think, pretty effectively debunk that assumption, that sort of small you know, hunter-gatherer societies are egalitarian, whereas larger organized urban societies are hierarchical or authoritarian. They, like you're saying, they sort of pull this in in a sometimes not totally clear way. You know, I think a lot of their arguments and sub-arguments get kind of convoluted, but they pull it into this broader meta-claim that the real question is not equality versus inequality. The real question is how you preserve personal freedoms, right? And that's what we should really be concerned about, which on a conceptual level, I was like, all right, maybe that's a valid kind of reorientation, but it's also quite convenient, right? (laughs) Especially if you belong to a a higher stratum of society, uh, it's very nice to be able to say, stop worrying about equality and inequality. That's the wrong question. We really should be thinking about personal freedom. You know, and they put this great emphasis on the importance of intellectual freedoms and the ability to take part in debates, and that this is sort of fun, a fundamental part of our essence as humans, that we take part in intellectual and political debates about what sort of what society should look like. And they really uh, enshrine that as kind of an ultimate value. And, you know, that's a fair, valid point of view, but it also makes a lot of sense for two guys who are academics and self-conceived intellectuals that they sort of see that as like the highest value and you know don't pay pay no attention to the man behind the curtain don't worry about material economic inequality right and that you know in some ways this is sort of an odd and surprising approach from someone like Graeber right who's heavily associated with Occupy and with with coining this notion of the 99% and the 1% um, and so, you know, if, if you think about how his, his contributions are, are sort of popularly understood prior to this book, they're very much centered on the, the issue of inequality. Whereas what he does here is sort of unbundle various, I'd say, sort of elements and perhaps aspects or different types of inequality and argue that, you know, essentially you can have, you can have social organizations that are, for example, somewhat hierarchical or partly hierarchical while being sort of materially relatively equal. And then you can have kind of all sorts of different combinations of those, right? And this is, again, based largely on anthropological and archaeological evidence. The thing that's kind of tricky about this book, and I, and I did want to kind of start with maybe the more the, the aspects of it that we appreciate more, Mm-hmm. Um, so, so kind of going back to your, your initial assessment, you know, so part of their argument is that if you, if you actually look at the record, particularly based on sort of more recent archaeological discoveries, what you'll find is that there is not a clear linear succession, as has often been proposed, right? And as you find 
recapped in in popular uh, books like Guns, Germs, and Steel and Sapiens more recently, that, you know, essentially you have a sort of early phase in which humans live in these small hunter-gatherer groups, right, and are, are essentially foragers and and hunters in which they are sort of materially poor, although that is, you know, there's sort of, I mean, there's sort of some complexity here because, you know, you have sort of two different ways of thinking about this. The the standard one is that they're materially poor and their lives are nasty, brutish, and short, right, as in Hobbes. But then there is a sort of revisionist version of this evolutionist idea, which sort of inverts it. Which interestingly, the most the most influential version of this on me was written by David Graeber's doctoral advisor, Marshall Salins, called The Original Affluent Society, right? In which he argues mm-hmm. that, in fact, if you look at hunter-gatherer groups that can be directly, or at least when he was writing in the 60s and 70s, could be sort of directly observed and studied, you know, what you find is that they have a relatively leisurely existence, in part because they have learned how to make use of the resources that surround them as, as efficiently as possible. So in other words, what might look like material poverty from our perspective is in fact an incredible resourcefulness at making use of what the environment, what the environment they live in provides to them. Right. And so in fact, the work of foraging, once you become, or, or if you are expert at, you know, identifying the right kinds of plants and seeds and so on, is, is actually not particularly demanding compared to the types of work that emerge at later stages. So anyway, there's sort of this two, you know, and this basically recaps the sort of Hobbes versus Rousseau, hunter-gatherers as nasty, brutish, and short versus a sort of noble savage idea. Salins isn't really offering a noble savage idea, but he is offering a kind of positive reevaluation of the potentialities of hunter-gatherer existence, right? Mm-hmm. But then regardless of which of these perspectives you take on this phase of humanity living in small bands and so on. Um, The story goes, you know, at some point there's a discovery of agriculture. And in this more positive evaluation of hunter-gatherer life, which you find, for example, in uh, Yuval Harari's Sapiens, right? And he's, I think, drawing on Salins. You know, he represents the discovery of agriculture as as a luxury trap, right? Where Basically, your your capacity to produce agricultural surpluses does not equate to, and, and in fact equates ultimately to a lower standard of living for most people because it, first of all, increases the population, but therefore requires more work to feed the growing population and also makes you more vulnerable to things like drought um, or other and kinds diseases. of blights. That, and, and, and also that it brings people living together in, you know, more crowded urban settings and therefore, you know, brings about various kinds of diseases and the original sort of plagues and things like that, which would have been much, much less likely in when humans were living in smaller bands, at least so the story goes. You know, from there, humans have sort of already fallen, have, you know, either undertaken this inevitable step forward towards greater progress and material abundance, if you take one version of the story, or have fallen from grace into this luxury trap from which they can never escape, right? And that's that's essentially the version you find in Harari's Sapiens. So basically their, you know, their central contention is that we have to scrap both of these accounts, which which even though they seem to be opposed, actually have the same implications, which which are these kind of deterministic assumptions about human history, right? Yeah, yeah. And it seems to me the best I can understand is that 
once you got this insight from Salins, which allows you to reevaluate and say, maybe this whole agricultural revolution was a mistake, right? That's sort of an idea that has gotten out into intellectual circles that maybe this was all a trap. That, I think, set the stage then for James C. Scott and Against the Grain, where he tries to put some daylight and some separation between the innovation of agriculture and then the rise of all these horrible things of war and authoritarianism. And he argues that, no, there were thousands of years where people farmed in different ways and experimented with it. I think he maybe even uses this word play, which like shows up constantly in Dawn of Everything. Like It's like one of their main buzzwords. But Scott sort of wants to separate those things out and say, no, you can practice agriculture and get certain benefits from it. And it doesn't necessarily lead to the rise of authoritarian societies and all this, you know, all this misery, right, is the implication. But it makes it possible because once you're growing grain, you can stockpile it, you know, you have to harvest it at one time of year, you stockpile it in huge granaries. And then, you know, basically some glorified marauder is going to come and demand a share of it. And, and the state the state arises as a kind of glorified protection racket, or he, he even says even worse. They're just like, they're just bandits who just want to entrap people and exploit them. And, and hence, then you get these big, awful states and empires. And Graeber and Wengro, it seems, are trying to even then push a step beyond James C. Scott and say, no, you can even have a big urban society. And even then, it can work along egalitarian lines. They do use that word a few times. And it can work in consensual, by consensual cooperative governance. You can have, you know, and they talk about, oh, these cities in Sumer had neighborhood committees and, you know, there was no sort of ruling uh, tyrant. And they sort of cast, you know, it's almost utopian, right? It's borderline utopian, but they're kind of casting some of these early urban agricultural societies as kind of like little anarcho-syndicalist cooperatives, right? And, and they're trying to tell us, see, we can have those nice things, even at the same time that we have cities and art and literature and all these things we like, we can do it in this more kind of cooperative, consensual, non-authoritarian way. Yeah, and I think, you know, it often seems like what they're presenting is this kind of combinatory matrix where you sort of have all these different elements of a society, right? And that what they're what they're trying to claim is that you can sort of combine and recombine them and, and sort of unbundle them in different kinds of ways, right? So, you know, whereas this, this previous model assumes that there's kind of a, a lockstep adoption of certain social forms as, you know, say the economic mode of production shifts, and they, you know, heavily critique the notion that there even is a mode of production, right? That, that the mode mm-hmm, of production mm-hmm. is, a, is a useful framework. And by the way, you know, this, you know, again, part of why I thought of you in relation to this was like, it does remind me a little bit of what you do in your podcast in these myths of the month, where you'll take some kind of organizing concept and try to kind of unpack it and show how it, you know, may conceal a much messier reality and might might sort of reify yeah. something that is that is actually far more ambiguous. So, you know, I think what they're doing here is quite interesting because what they're saying is that there are these kinds of abstractions that actually um, oversimplify 
you know, a range of social forms by, by assuming that all of these things necessarily go together, right? Absolutely. And, and I think that, I mean, a section of the book that I was already inclined to agree with, but nonetheless, I really thought was strong was their, basically their dismantling of the concept of the state, you know, and I think they have a chapter that's just called why the state has no origin. And I was like, you know, right from the get go, I was like, I'm on board with this. But still, I think they did it very well, illustrating how there are very different ways for elites to create and exercise power. And that they, these things can operate often independently of one another. There's no one moment where you say, aha, now we have a state and it has a ruler and a bureaucracy and law code, etc. These things can can form and, and come and go independently of one another. And, you know, they had, they had the sort of wealth of empirical knowledge to illustrate that. Right. And I mean, this, you know, again, in a basic way, I think they're quite successful at demonstrating certain things that, you know, that you can have, you know, seemingly small scale societies that practice agriculture over long periods and do not fall into any you know, luxury trap or anything like that, right? That, that they seem to practice agriculture as one of various options for obtaining foodstuffs and, you know, may practice it alongside foraging and, and hunting without, without really, you know, there being this notion that, you know, once you've discovered agriculture, it's all over. You know? mm-hmm. um, yeah. And so, and the important thing is to show that this, this can actually, and, and has by the archeological record evidently gone on for a long time. And that also you have civilizations or societies that have practiced agriculture for a period, sometimes a long period, and then seemingly given it up. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah. so there's, you know, both the idea that it, it's something that can be sort of picked up and it can be picked up and practiced as, as sort of part of your economy without it being, you know, the, without it becoming the dominant mode of production to come back to that term. And also that it's that that once you're in it, it's not some kind of um, it's it's not something that just sets you on this path towards increasing centralization, and yeah. and sort of urbanization as as is often believed. And then conversely, yeah. they they show um, that you know there's evidence of urban civilizations that seem to have been primarily persisted as sort of hunter gatherers, right? That that most of their foodstuffs appear to have come from have come from foraging right and hunting that again you could have these urban civilizations that that evolved and that also sustained themselves that way for significant periods of time and so again there's this attempt to kind of de-link I mean first of all to overcome this kind of either or framing and at the same time to kind of de-link these different you know aspects of a sort of, of social formation and suggest mm-hmm. that they don't necessarily go together there yeah, are, yeah. there are different ways of of combining them that that don't fit neatly within the kind of evolutionary models that are usually adduced here Absolutely and they're trying to carve out the greatest widest possible scope for human freedom, right? That people actually can consciously choose how they want their societies to operate. And they're not trapped in this sort of cage that if we are subsisting off of this supposed mode of production, we will therefore like automatically enact this political form. You know, they're trying to, I think they refute, to give them credit, they refute these sort of Hobbesian and Rousseauian myths that there's some sort of 
flashpoint, right? Where you, where you change over from a primitive state to civilization and there are all these inevitable consequences to that. It's also, I think, but it's interesting, I think this book is also very deeply anti-Marxist in a way that they're much more subtle about, you know, and just the fact that they're taking issue with the very concept of mode of production, you know, there, I think that a lot of what this book is serving to do is sort of present a, an ostensibly leftist radical narrative of human development that is not Marxist and is not tied to, to this Marxist framework. And if you're sensitive to it, you can see that's what they're doing, but they're much more subtle about it. Yeah, I agree. And I mean, to me, it was interesting to see it's, I I did not really see much in the way of criticism of this book from a sort of Marxist perspective, at least when I made an initial survey of what had been written about it, um, which I, which I did find surprising um, because I mean, for example, if you look at like, you know, the sort of Jacobin magazine and the podcasts associated with it, it was all pretty glowing coverage. Mm-hmm. And but but I think you're right that it is a I mean that that it really tries to dismantle certain really basic assumptions you kind of need to have if you're if you're a Marxist. <laughs> and one of those would be mode of production. Like I don't I don't really see how Marxism survives if you get rid of a notion of mode of production. <laughs> I mean, Marxist analysis of of power, as far as in my understanding, I'm not as steeped in Marxism as some people are, but my understanding is that it's, it is rooted in this idea of base and superstructure, that the, the ultimate base of society is its economic production, its mode of material production, and then politics are just sort of the window dressing put on on top of that. You know, I'm sure there are many Marxists who would say that's oversimplifying, but nonetheless, that's my understanding. And that's like exactly what they're dismantling in this book. They're, They're trying to say, no, you can put up whatever political structure you want based on whatever material base you've got right? They, they're totally breaking that relationship. And I think I haven't read, I, you know, I, I sort of sometimes I make a point of not reading reviews and comments on, on a book that I'm reading. I did a little bit with this one, but, but I'm sure not, I didn't look around as much as you did. But to me, it seems to demonstrate that Marxism ain't what it used to be. Post-Cold War, there's no Soviet Union, there's no uh, superpower out there that can kind of validate this sense that there's an ultimate truth to the Marxist description of history and that, and that inevitably f- the history is going to unfold along those Marxist revolutionary lines. Like, I think it's just a lot harder to believe that today or for whatever social or political reason, people don't seem to really subscribe to that belief system anymore, even if they are ostensibly Marxist. Right. So in, in a way, I think maybe this book is kind of serving a new market, right, a new opening for people who want a different story or a story that is more seems more politically liberating than the kind of more deterministic dialectical Marxist history. Yeah. And I mean, I think we'll get back to this later, but, you know, yeah, this this notion of I mean, it, it's it seems to be animated by this kind of total voluntarism, right? That, that you can just kind of make and remake your society however you want. And I think, you know, I, I want to get into that in a critical way shortly, but it's just worth noting, I think if, if you try to trace the origin of this project, 
it seems pretty clear to me that it's it originates in this basic question which is posed particularly to anarchists like Graeber, right? Which is, well, and I mean, he, he makes this explicit really, you know, which is, well, you know, that sounds really nice to not have any kind of centralized authority and people telling you what to do, but, and maybe that would work in a small group, but, you know, what about, how, how do you scale it up to, to a large, complex, highly different, economically differentiated society with, you know, division of labor and, you know, complex technologies and sciences that require specialization and coordination. So, you know, so this is basically the the sort of aha question that's typically posed to anarchists. And so I think, mm-hmm. you know, one way we could read this book is as kind of a an attempt, you know, a very, very long-winded answer to this kind of retort, right? And I think, yeah. you know, that the, it's interesting. I listened to an interview with Wengro, I think on one of the Jacobin podcasts, actually. He responds to, or he explains how Graeber and he sort of initially responded to that question in the opposite way that, that you might think, which is to say, well, you know, well, people say, oh, well, anarchism works really well with small groups, but what about big ones? And and he said, but of course, you know, as as David and I knew, you know, if, if you actually hang around in small fringe radical groups, they don't really function very well at all, right? And so, yeah. and, and in fact, all sorts of hierarchy and sort of domineering tendencies and, and highly divisive fragmentation occur within these all the time, right? So in fact, you know, which, which it's interesting to hear, um, you know, particularly Graeber, who was sort of this outspoken advocate of all these things that we associate with Occupy, like the sort of human microphone stuff and that that's all the sort of direct democracy organizational um, mm-hmm. strategies. So it's interesting to hear him say that. I mean, it's an obvious point to anybody who's actually uh, been, been around any <laughs> yeah. of these groups. But, but you know, I, I think the other thing that's interesting about Graeber is that he's, I mean, in terms of his background, he's also the opposite of a you know, you have these sort of an, like anarcho-primitivists, right, for whom it really is about returning to this kind of idealized hunter-gatherer worlds that you might derive from a sort of shallow reading of, of Marshall Salins's essay that I mentioned before. I mean, you know, and these people are, are a real and, and significant sort of fringe group around the world. And Graeber was sort of the opposite of that. I mean, he, you know, he has this essay I've, I've always loved and have taught quite a bit called um, On Flying Cars and the Declining Rate of Production, mm, yeah. which is, you know, very much about his continuing to be a sort of starry-eyed futurist who, you know, is still informed by the um, technological fantasia of his youth, right? In the sort of latter period of, of the mid-century American moment where, you know, the belief that we'd have flying cars and, and space colonies and all those kinds of things was still very real to him as a child. And that essay is kind of a reflection on what happened to those dreams and why the, the visions of, of high-tech futurists seem so, seem so much more limited today. And so, you know, I think one thing that's, crucial for him is trying to figure out how you imagine a different kind of organization of society that is, that again, preserves these freedoms while, mm-hmm. while still being committed to a kind of modernist vision of, of technological improvement, right? That he, that he, he was always um, highly enthusiastic about, right? But he, he's very much not a primitivist. And I think we can see how in this book, you know, he would see primitivism as a sort of, as based on a misunderstanding, right? 
Um, and so the idea that you could have, for example, these advanced uh, these sort of urban civilizations in the past, which were large and, and complex, but seemed to preserve a certain degree of, of both social equality and freedom from sort of hierarchical control would be a way for him to think about, okay, well, can't we still have the things we like about modernity and, and also have more of those things than we have now, right? Have more of the genuine technologically enabled abundance that, you know, people dreamed about 50 to 70 years ago, but at the same time also achieve greater equality, right? Or, or greater, greater freedom. I, again, I think the whole question of equality, as you brought up before, is very complicated to make sense of in this book, but equality, not necessarily in the sense of material equality, but equality in the sense that there are not people who are empowered to tell other people what to do and, you know, summon the power of the state to, to uh, punish those who disobey. Yeah, it's, it's about, it's more about personal freedom and not being subordinated to someone else. It's about personal freedom, not being subordinated to a ruler or an elite. And, you know, and as we can talk about, maybe they, they draw a lot on also on Native Americans, you know, particularly the, the Wendat or Huron as sort of a model of a highly functioning society where everyone is, is a free individual. And yeah, it does, a lot of it adds up to this kind of argument that actually we can have our cake and eat it too. I think, you know, I think that they, they partly, they maybe part, they get part of the way <laughs> in proving that argument, but there are still, there's still hurdles and there's still the question of, well, are we really sure that that's what we want? Which I think they kind of take for granted that their readers are just going to sympathize with that, that vision that we want an abundant society, a sophisticated society where we also have maximum personal freedom and things are run by consensual cooperation, et cetera. You know, is that attainable and is that really what we want? Right. And, you know, I think it is in, in a way his sort of dismissal of the, the premises behind a sort of anarcho-primitivist notion, as well as his, you know, embrace, at least in his other writings of sort of high tech society, right? Mm -hmm. that, that he really, mm -hmm. um, he thinks that there was a sort of positive modernist dream of the future that, that was betrayed, right? And that he, mm -hmm. he has an interesting reading of neoliberalism and postmodernism as kind of both symptomatic of and also ideologically partly responsible for this betrayal, because what they do is say, I mean, they, they shift the terrain of progress away from the notions of a sort of widely distributed abundance that technolo technology could produce towards other, other ideas of what sort of growth and progress would be. That's an interesting essay, and he doesn't really revisit these ideas here. But, you know, I, I guess one thing that's kind of interesting is that I'm, I'm currently writing something about Ivan Illich, right, who's often categorized as an anarchist and has this whole kind of interesting critique of scarcity, of sort of the notion of scarcity as a, a an organizing concept of modern mm -hmm. societies, mm -hmm. right? And it's, it's very concurrent in a way with that Salins article because... Illich's argument is sort of that the sort of ideologies of modernity begin by positing scarcity, right, as then something that has to be compensated for by the constant development of technology, as well as the developments of all of these sort of institutions and professions, right, that, that essentially um, take autonomy away from individuals and families and 
communities on the premise that this is what is going to bring progress and abundance to them. You know, so so Illich's critique is that this whole notion that there even is such a thing as scarcity, right, is this this kind of dangerous ideological assumption that that sort of undergirds, you know, much of uh, modernity. And so, mm-hmm. you know, it's interesting in a way to see Graeber, you know, not taking that critique insofar as I think he does basically embrace a notion that, you know, technologically generated abundance is a is a desirable and positive project. And yeah, yeah. And personally, when I was reading the book, there were moments where I was kind of filling in the blanks, which I think is something a lot of readers surely do. I was, I was like, oh, well, they must be thinking of things like Mondragone, you know, which Richard Wolff is always talking about, about these industrial corporations that work as cooperatives and the workers make the decisions and hire and fire their bosses, etc. But, but they don't, they don't get into that in this book. They seem to sort of figure that, best I can guess, they seem to sort of figure that the readers will be open to and favorable to that kind of social arrangement that they're, that we can, again, you know, we can have our cake and eat it too. And, but, but they don't, they don't kind of close the deal by saying, here's how these social forms sometimes actually do work today in, in the 21st century. Right. We, it's kind of the closest we get is like, well, you know, in Uruk, before the kings took over, uh, everything was run by the community board. And I'm like, okay, (laughs) like, I believe you, but, but clearly they do not want, they're very clear that they, they're not trying to turn the clock back. Right. They believe that it is in our power to turn the clock forward. Right. And that way, I think the, the book is anti-Marxist, but it's also still revolutionary in its own way. We can we can remake the world as we wish and not think that that means that we have to give up the, the productivity, the wealth, the sophistication that we like. Right. It's uh, it's it is it is all within our power. Right. And that's probably what's very appealing about the book to a lot of, you know, self-described radicals. Yeah. And I mean, this kind of makes me want to bring up uh, one other aspect of the project that I appreciated, and then maybe we can get into our criticisms more. But I I really appreciated the argument, although as I'll get into, I think there's a way it, it goes off the rails. But I really appreciated the argument that you know, people at all times have been self-conscious political actors, right? I think they take this argument in directions that I don't, um, that I don't really understand or fully um, endorse. But I think overall, right, this notion of, you know, social forms as, as always being at least partly the, the result of people's ability to deliberate about and reflect on how society should be organized is is a valuable kind of argument. I mean, just the basic point that at any point in the past, there were people as sort of intellectually astute and effective and and insightful about the, the shortcomings of their societies and or what kinds of improvements could be introduced, um, you know, that, that, that this is not a sort of pure um, product of like the enlightenment and that, that everybody else in history was to some extent, you know, some sort of, again, you know, deterministic automaton. Like, I mean, I think in some ways they overstate the way that 
other people like they they have to assume that basically everybody before them just assumed that all these previous societies kind of lacked any critical sensibility um so i think you know overall that's an interesting point right and it it did um you know and i was sort of prepared for it by my own awareness of like at least some of the anthropological and archaeological research i think they're drawing upon which you know, for example, you have in anthropological literature a strong sense that there are societies that are that seem to be self-consciously egalitarian in that they, um, you know, anybody who accumulates too much wealth is immediately sort of forced to redistribute it, right? And mm-hmm. um, and that you know, particularly in like the Amazon, for example, there are, there are all these groups that have been repeatedly observed and studied over the years where there seems to be this kind of imperative that you know, is, is, it could be understood as a sort of ideological one, right, in which um, basically it is, it is wrong for any one person to accumulate too much power, right, or, or too much power and too much um, wealth. And so there are these kind of mechanisms of redistribution that are built into how these societies function, right. And then, you know, the other thing I've sort of become aware of somewhat vaguely over the years is that, you know, there's also a sense that, in the same regions of South America where you find this, you also in the past had these quite hierarchical priestly urban societies, right? And so it's not unreasonable to imagine that these groups kind of formed these these social practices that are based on kind of redistribution and ensuring that nobody monopolizes too much power, in part because their you know ancestors had experience of the opposite sort of society, right? And therefore that mm-hmm, they, mm-hmm. at some point, and and Graeber, you know, they they go through um, a couple examples where this something like this seems to have happened, right? That there's a an extremely you know centralized hierarchical, often priestly civilization which falls into some kind of crisis and what what sometimes seems to result is you have these groups that you know become self-consciously egalitarian in a sense right that that this and this goes back to the sort of critique of determinism right that egalitarianism in these contexts is not a sort of natural expression of this primordial mode of production or of just you know the it, it, or just a reflection of their, you know, ba- sort of mater- basic material circumstances. It's, it's actually a sort of self-conscious ideological project that has to be kind of rigorously maintained through the generations and seems to, oh, it's, you know, seems to res- have resulted from some sort of revolution in which this um, prior civilization collapsed and these groups that splintered off from it, you know, essentially decided that they did not want to you know, fall into the same patterns that they're, you know, that that they and later their ancestors um, had sort of uh, rejected, right? And so I think yeah, this is yeah. this is an interesting point and, and a useful one overall, I would say. Yeah, it, it definitely is. And I think that I actually saw a lecture that Graeber, that was posted on YouTube, of course, of Graeber discussing the myth of the stupid savage, which, so I had already kind of been exposed to that line of reasoning that which basically is rooted in the principle that there is no primitive society, that that, that in itself is a misconception. And, and you can trace this really back to Claude Levi-Strauss, who also is like kind of in the background, I think, of this whole book. And they mention him a few times, usually favorably. But, you know, he wrote The Savage Mind, and which basically is a way of debunking this notion that tribal people 
are incapable of intellectual reflection. They're they're unself conscious about their world, and I, you know I think that it's it's a good argument. I think that in the book, it's nuanced maybe a bit more than it was in Graeber's earlier lecture, where in the book they put forward this theory of schismogenesis, the idea that distinct groups arise because for one reason or another, people sort of hive off and define themselves in contradistinction, contradistinction to one another. So if you wanna understand where a society comes from and why it works the way it does, you often have to say, well, who, who are they splitting off from? And how, and how do they then define themselves in contrast to the other? And they go into this example, which I thought was so interesting and really stimulating to think about this contrast between indigenous people in Northern California, as opposed to in the Pacific Northwest, like the Tlingit and the Kwakutl, and how they have such completely different value systems, and in some ways seem almost like they're mirror images of one another, where the Pacific Northwest people are very hierarchical, they're very ceremonial, it's about showing off wealth, there are sort of strong men leaders, whereas in Northern California, in these groups, like I think the Kurik, I think it was either Kurik or Yurik, and they're, they're sort of formally egalitarian, there's this ethic of modesty, not showing off, hard work, ac accumulation rather than munificence, right, ceremonial munificence, the potlatch, is the, the ideal in the Northwest. And I thought that was very interesting and they attribute it to what they call schismogenesis. I, I thought, well, okay, maybe that's true. I'm not sure they really demonstrate it, that that's how it came about, but that's how they account for it. And it seems like it's in that way, it's a little bit of a compromise, right? Where they're not saying there was some moment in the past where they held a constitutional convention and wrote down what are our core values of this society, but that there was a kind of process maybe of reasoning over time where people gradually formed these values and principles, knowing that they were defining themselves against something else that they didn't want to be. Yeah. And I think here, you know, it might be worth getting into. So I have sort of one critical point regarding this, which is, you know, I, I think, as you said before, it, it's often as if this argument in favor of a kind of political agency being a sort of human universal is is worthwhile, right? But mm -hmm. also the way that they conceive of that seems to me very limiting because as you said earlier, it, it sounds as if they're sort of imagining you know, everything kind of functioning like the Occupy encampment or something like that, where like yeah, people yeah. are just kind of getting together and arriving at some consensus about what kind of social organization they want. And then, you know, and, and, that, and that's how you explain the emergence of, of certain types of social forms. Now, to me, the schismogenesis argument, I mean, so the schismogenesis argument is, is effective as a sort of counter a piece of counter evidence against any kind of determinism right because you know what they show with as you said the pacific northwest and northern california is you have sort of similar ecosystems similar types of resources available and yet these two diametrically opposed societies evolving right and then that if you they also look at their myths and sort of show that 
there are sort of specific myths in these sort of more um, these uh, Northern Californian societies, which which seem to define themselves against the Pacific Northwest societies in which you have things like slavery, right? Mm-hmm. And that there are these myths that seem to kind of explicitly condemn slavery, right? And see it as this kind of predicament from which they themselves escaped at some point or, or from, you know, from which they, which they themselves left behind, right? So, so the thing that I find sort of, and I mean, you brought up Levi-Strauss, right? Um, it seems to me that there's a kind of flattening of this question of what it means to have political agency and to sort of self-consciously choose to adopt a certain social form because it's the the way i mean ironically given that in some ways the book is a sort of critique of the enlightenment it it essentially assumes a kind of enlightenment value about what makes for the basis of or what should make for the basis of sort of political decisions and determinations right and so for example it it excludes or or simply doesn't consider like aesthetics as one determinate as one point of determination, right? So in other words, it it assumes that like aesthetics would not be a value that would be, or 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 if you claim, I mean, from there the way they frame the argument, I would say, if if you claim as I as I think I am that if you want to think about how people organize their societies, you have to think about their aesthetic values and not just their sort of rational deliberations, then Absolutely. they then they they kind of put us in the position where. I guess I would be accused now of being of being a primitivist, or or of or of, of being a primitivist if I value that positively, or of being a kind of Orientalist or something like that. If I mm-hmm. if I'm implying that you know these pre-modern civilizations are deriving their judgments about what kind of society we should have based on aesthetic criteria, so to me it seems clear that that is true, right? That <laughs> that aesthetic yeah. criteria are important, and I think that is also true in modern society, right? But the idea that that would be regarded negatively, which which they seem to, you know, only be able to imagine this as a kind of negative evaluation, right? Um, that mm-hmm. that if you if you claim that aesthetics or let's say you know religious ideas, which I think is a whole other aspect of this that that we need to get into, if you say that those are clearly elements that inform how people engage in these kind of deliberations about what kind of society they want then it seems to me they, Graeber and Wengro have kind of backed themselves into this corner where they would have to accuse me of being, of, of kind of either reiterating a noble savage myth where, you know, they're just these simple people who think in images or something like that, or of, you know, being some kind of, again, of being a kind of Orientalist, right? Who's incapable of imagining them having rationality. Well, and I think uh, an enemy of human freedom right, is probably how they would cast that, right? And they're they're really like mixing pot and alcohol here in the sense that they're making these big descriptive claims saying human beings are capable of reflecting consciously and rationally on how they want society to work and coming to their own determinations. And then laced all through it is are these value claims, these these normative claims that this is good, this is part of our essence as human beings, and that we should be doing this all the time. And there's something wrong with us. You know, we're they keep saying we're stuck. Things have gone wrong because we're not engaging in sort of imaginative play about how society ideally ought to work. And this was the biggest, most frustrating aspect of the book to me was I was like, hold on here. 
first of all, on the descriptive level, yeah, I, I agree with you. People are capable of conscious reflection and debate about how society should work, but they don't do it very much. They're often not good at it and they usually don't like it. They don't, they don't want their myths to be questioned. People don't want their view of the world to be upset unless they're already really aggravated and they see something is going really wrong. And even then, when they're sort of become these ideal anarchist revolutionary subjects and they're ready to tear down the system, they tend to just recreate some myth that they already know, right? They, it's like you ask people, what's a utopian society? They'll generally tell you it's a society like the one they already live in that's just perfected, right? That just realizes those same values in a more perfect and frictionless way, right? And, and I was like, okay, you've got, you've got all this emphasis on myth and the way that it can blind you and rule out certain possibilities, right? We can't, we're unable to reimagine our world because we believe in the myth of the noble savage, et cetera. But they don't acknowledge how myth also guides what we want and what we imagine and what we aspire to, right? And that's how societies, I think, recreate themselves. I think this is something, I mean, I don't know, but this seems like something Claude Levi-Strauss would agree with. Is like you ask people, hey, recreate whatever society you want. They're going to draw on the myths and the worldview that they're already familiar with and try to realize that in some more perfect way. And I don't think that they acknowledge the power of myth in that sense. And they don't seem to consider that if we got together a bunch of modern Western people and said, wipe the slate clean, do whatever you want. I mean, isn't this what John Rawls was talking about? John Rawls was saying, let's imagine people who, you know, are totally unencumbered, can recreate, reimagine society however they want. And what do they create? They basically create a social democracy, right? They, re they create something that a Harvard professor from Baltimore would want to create, right? <laughs> uh, so in that sense, I think they're, they're, they're not really grappling with the power of myth and how much people love myth and people want continuity. They want familiarity. They want the world that they know. They're not, everybody is not just a natural anarchist, right? Right. Again, I, th I think what's weird here is that they, they take, you know, on one hand, they sort of, they try to, I mean, I, we should get into this whole, um, their, their whole account of the European enlightenment, which I think is, kind of a disaster um it's it's probably i mean it's it's the part of the book that most infuriated me um but you know what i think is kind of interesting is that they themselves as as i think you were just saying are very much the inheritors of these kinds of enlightenment prejudices i would say where of of, of the worst sort right where they they essentially downgrade certain elements of you know that that are essential and fundamental to all human societies and but but what they do instead of saying, you know, myth is dumb and if you believe in it, you're dumb is to say, if you assert that these previous societies were, you know, as well as, I mean, I would say contemporary societies <laughs> deeply animated by myth, as you were just arguing, but, but if you say that about, you know, ancient societies or, you know, North American or tribal Indians. societies, they, they will say, right, they, they will say, oh, well, I guess you're just reasserting this kind of racist historical model. You know, I mean, to me, the other thing that's kind of interesting here is that they, 
I'm influenced by um, Bruno Latour in this, right? That, you know, the, his argument is basically that, you know, what, what distinguishes modernity is that it creates this sort of um, set of divisions between different, you know, so for example, it takes something like myth and says that that occupies a different sphere from something like politics, right? And that they shouldn't be mixed, mm. right? But, but Latour's argument is that they are always being mixed anyway. So, you know, when modernity does this, it, it's, it's a kind of productive um, illusion because it enables certain kinds of things to happen, certain kinds of social phenomena to be sort of mobilized, um, you know, particularly things like science. But for Latour, the point is that, you know, we're now having to come to grips with the fact that these divisions were always illusory, right? That, that myth never stopped, you know, just as myth was always animating all these earlier periods, it is also animating us today, right? And that it's not, mm -hmm. you know, simply cordoning that off from something like politics or something like science is ultimately a perpetuation of this this kind of foundational illusion. So what's odd to me about Graeber and, and Wengro in these terms is that they sort of seem to accept this constitutive division, right? Whereby, you know, politics is something fundamentally distinct from myth. And what they instead what they want to do is sort of universalize politics and argue that mm. you know deliberative politics deliver deliberative sort of rational political thought has been a property of all societies. And if you if you pay attention to other things that might have motivated or informed those societies, then you're somehow degrading them, right? Degrading them, and this, right? Yeah. And, th and this seems. You know, this this seems like a disastrous move to me, <laughs> um, because it forces them to it, for, it forces them to accept the the sort of degrading understanding of something like myth, something like you know what we would categorize as under the heading of religion. I mean, it it, it forces us to accept all of those kind of demotions, right? That that are performed by the Enlightenment, right? Mm -hmm. Which mm -hmm. which they're allegedly critiquing the sort of legacy of, but which in fact, I think they're, they're sort of reinforcing some of the more sort of pernicious and, and ultimately damaging uh, assumptions there. Yeah, I think, and I think that they're, I mean, haven't we heard this song before? Like, doesn't this go back to, to Hegel and Hegel's critique of previous philosophers that Graeber and Wengro seem to be imagining that like the constitutional convention in Philadelphia in 1787 was like the basic model for how societies should operate. It should always be these kind of rational actors coming in in an abstract way, laying down the, the right laws that we want to follow. And um, of course they would attack those, those individuals as being locked into their racist and sexist assumptions and encumbered by their own myths and prejudices. But they don't, they don't consider, well, maybe that's how like all societies work, you know, like maybe this is maybe myth and, you know, deeply held assumptions that order the world are always being expressed in politics and in the exercise of power and that uh, and that power flows from myth. They discuss the origins of kingship a bit, which I think they they do in not a too bad way. I think they have some interesting good ideas there that it relates to death and the transition from life to the afterlife. But it seems as if they sort of assume, well, 
done. We've deconstructed kingship. We've shown how it's all phony. And they don't stop and think like, okay, well, there are many societies in the world today that are perfectly capable of grasping how monarchy is all about pageantry and it's all, and it's purely ceremonial and they like it and they want more of it. <laughs> you know, like people, they're a healthy, strong society is a society that has rituals and symbols and stories that people embrace. Like this is, this is what Hegel was saying is like Athens is doing really well when everybody is taking part in the procession to make offerings to Athena and, and people generally buy into it and are, and are happy with it. And it's, and the problem is when that confidence breaks down and people are alienated from the central myths and rituals of their society. Now, you don't necessarily have to agree with Hegel. Like, I'm just saying this is a totally opposing viewpoint on power and myth that they don't seem to, to consider at all. Like they, 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 it, they do not address it in the least. They don't seem as if they've even really thought about it. And I thought, how do they get away with that? And I think a lot of it is that, you know, this book is sort of aimed at an audience that just doesn't know about these already existing debates that have been going on for hundreds of years. They don't know what Hegel said about Athens, which is fine. Everyone doesn't have to know about that. But I would say they're taking advantage of that. They're taking advantage of the fact that there is now a massive college educated audience that knows nothing, that knows nothing about philosophy, knows nothing about history. And are they're just like working on this raw material. Let's get into the enlightenment thing, which I think is uh, is related to that. But I, I did want to say one other thing, which is, you know, you brought up before that they, they constantly bring up this notion of play, right? But, you know, what strikes me here is that, I mean, I was also interested in, you know, do they have any notion of human nature? Like that was something I was trying to tease out of this book. And I think I think generally they would probably have to say no, you know, and we could think about this in terms of like the Thomas Sowell, you know, constrained versus unconstrained vision. This is clearly the kind of a more extreme version of the unconstrained vision in some sense, right? But what's interesting there is that if it's about play, you know, as anybody who plays any game knows, you know, without some sort of quite strict constraints, a game simply doesn't work. Mm. And so, and this, I think it relates to the schismogenesis. It relates to their remarks about seasonality, right? That basically you have these um, societies, for example, in the Arctic that, you know, will alternate between more hierarchical and more kind of flat social organizations seasonally, right? So depending on summer or winter, you know, whether they're fishing and hunting or consuming what they stored up, they will, they will alternate between these different forms, right? Apparently... And for them, what this shows is that, you know, there's no sense in these societies that they are stuck with some kind of hierarchical organization, right? That they're perfectly capable of scrapping that every year and replacing it with this um, this seemingly flat organization where certain things that would be taboo or, or not permitted at certain times of year become okay, right? And of course, mm-hmm. you know, maybe the more famous version of this would be something like Carnival, where you have a kind of ritualized inversion of, of the social order as something that's, you know, instituted and, and accepted as, as sort of part of the functioning of that order, right? So there's this, this playful overturning. But I think, mm-hmm. you know, what they're missing here, and this also goes for schismogenesis, is, you know, they, they seem to present it as if 
what this shows is just that everybody is always kind of envisioning this wide range of possibilities and they're just kind of, you know, again, voluntarily choosing to embrace one rather than the other. And to me, this just doesn't seem like a convincing analysis of what's happening. I mean, I'm not an expert on any of these kinds of things, but I mean, I've read quite a bit about Carnival, but it doesn't seem like a convincing even description of what's happening there, because it's clear that if you're alternating between these fixed forms, which contrast with each other, just as if you're evolving a kind of social structure that strongly contrasts with that of a neighboring group, you know, and these are both well-observed phenomena, that that does not imply it. I mean, to me, that implies the presence of constraint rather than the lack of it, right? I mean, it, it's, and, it, and in some ways, I would argue it's sort of, again, you could only have a good game if the game has quite strict constraints about what you can do within it, right? And so what I would argue is that it seems to me what's going on here, you know, just as, you know, the, the societies in which you had carnival were generally highly constrained and hierarchical ones. Um, what's going on here is that, that what these exhibit is not the absence of constraint, but the presence of a, a very strong set of constraints, right? That, that is actually what enables the, the sort of playfulness, if you want to call it that, to, to function. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, and on both of those points, I had, I had similar thoughts. I mean, you do have to wonder, okay, what is their what is their anthropology in the old fashioned sense of what, how do they describe humankind? And they're very careful not to say there's a fixed human nature, right? Because that's an, another kind of determinism, but they do have, they kind of, uh, they sneak it in, I think on, so I noted on page 86, they're discussing their idea that human beings are conscious and reflective and they paraphrase this other this other scholar named uh, Christopher Bohm, or Bohm, and they say, quote, this, he concludes, is the essence of politics, the ability to reflect consciously on different directions one society could take, and to make explicit arguments why it should take one path rather than another. In this sense, one could say Aristotle is right, which I don't think this is what Aristotle was saying, uh, but, it, but one could say Aristotle was right when he described human beings as political animals, since this is precisely what other primates never do, at least not to our knowledge. And then they go on to say, they, they push it further and they say, if the very essence of our humanity consists of the fact that we are self-conscious political actors and therefore capable of embracing a wide range of social arrangements, would that not mean human beings should actually have explored a wide range of social arrangements? So they're kind of slipping it in like by sleight of hand here that the essence of humanity is being political actors and being, you could say, political debaters, right? And, and I was like, no, no, like, hold on, record scratch. Like, sure, this is something humans do that other animals don't. But there are all kinds of things that humans do that other animals don't. You know, other animals don't write music or write books, right? But that doesn't mean it's like the essence of our humanity and we must be doing it all the time, right? And I think they, they kind of, in this slippery way, they kind of make that leap to say, this is what makes us essentially human. And so we must be doing it constantly, both descriptively and normatively. And then, and then with the seasonality, again, I was like alarm bells, alarm bells, all societies, 
like, sorry to generalize, but all societies have ritual actions that they repeat over the course of the year and that they use to demarcate between different states of being associated with the seasons. And they tend to explain these things as reflections of nature, reflections of the just inherent nature of the earth and the cosmos. And it's very interesting and thought-provoking how there are these societies, they describe the Amazon and then the Inuit, and, and how they go, they, they have different political forms and different forms of authority at different times of year. But does that mean that they're they're going through this kind of conscious debate and that they're aware that there's an infinite play, a variety of different ways they could organize their society? I doubt it. I think that they're doing the same sort of thing people do all the time, which is they form practices and customs and they explain them as expressions and reflections of the fundamental nature of things, right? We must do this because there is one God that rules in the summer and another God that rules in the winter. There is, there is a sun God and there is an underworld God, you know, take your pick. And, and if you ask these people, why do you do this? I highly doubt that many of them are going to say, well, it's because we had a debate and we hashed out all the different ways that we could organize society. And we picked this one for this part of the year and this one for this part of the year. I mean, it just doesn't seem realistic. And when it comes to carnival, that was where I was like, you know, when they're discussing, say, the Inuit, I don't I don't know anything about the Inuit beyond certainly not as much as they do. And I was like, like, all right, uh, sure, I'll give you the benefit of the doubt. But then they get to Carnival, which is, you know, medieval and early modern Europe. And they claim, well, Carnival was significant because all these peasant rebellions in Europe began from Carnival. It started off from the sort of pageantry of the world turned upside down, and then it exploded and they refused to go back. And I was like, I don't think that happened. I don't think that's true. I don't think peasant rebellions had anything to do with carnival. And I looked it up. I started searching. There's no example of that. That did not happen. People rebelled when a tax collector showed up in their town and started demanding money or a, or a conscription, you know, a military authority came to their town and started conscripting the young men and a scuffle broke out and then it became a riot and then it exploded into rebellion. It was about material, tangible material things. It was not this conceptual play, right? And, and that is one of the examples I noticed where I was like, guys, this is kind of my field. I know a little bit about this and this is just not true. This is not what happened. Yeah, and I mean, I think it's probably worth getting into the enlightenment stuff in relation to this. Um, mm -hmm. But just one other point, you know, that I thought was interesting is, you know, their basically their claim is that, you know, the origin of a lot of ideas of freedom is these sort of pre-conquest, particularly North American societies, right? Which mm -hmm. they, they present as places where, you know, basically there was no one, there might be a chief, but you could, you know, if he told you something, what to do, you could tell him to go get stuffed and there was no consequence for that. Or you could just kind of pick up and leave at will, supposedly, you could just kind of wander off mm -hmm. and, you know, join a different group and no big deal. And so, you know, it, it, if there is a part of the book that's <laughs> offering its own sort of noble savage stuff, even though the whole mm -hmm. thing is a, allegedly a critique of that, you know, that's that's kind of it, right? And we'll get into how that informs their, their very odd version of the Enlightenment. But 
<laughs> then there are also these odd parts though where they're discussing um, how, you know, basically you had a certain degree of unified cosmovision I guess different uh, groups in in North America who didn't necessarily even speak uh, mutually understandable languages, but you know had similar kind of totemic systems, right? In terms of how they classified animals, but also how they classified different groups within the society, right? And these totemic systems had significant practical implications, right? So on one hand, it meant that there were certain obligations towards you if you were a member of some totemic clan. Basically, you could go to a different group and you, they would be the members of that clan there would be obligated to put you up at the same time there would be restrictions about who you could and couldn't marry and also be, be your membership in a totemic clan would restrict what you couldn't could at hunt right so they they bring all of this up right and and so what they're describing there is a set of both pro positive obligations and negative prohibitions right that restrict what you can and can't do and also obligate you to act in certain ways at certain times. So this goes along with their description of this being a society where basically anybody could disobey authority and it would be fine and there would be no consequence, right? Where this kind of personal and collective freedom was, was could be expressed to the maximal degree. So what seems really weird is that how do they account for these obligations and prohibitions? I mean, I agree that it's okay. So here's here's what I would say about this. It part of what it shows is how impoverished their notion of power seems to be, because they seem to think if you don't have a specific dude who can tell you what to do, then you must be free, right? Right. But, right. but in fact, what these kinds of totemic systems of obligations and prohibitions show is that there are all sorts, and this goes back to the point about constraint, right? There are all sorts of constraints on behavior both in these societies and in the present that do not take the form of, you know, a cop telling you, you can't do something and arresting you if you do. Right. Which is basically Absolutely. their seemingly their model of how power operates. And so their model of freedom is fuck you. I won't do what you tell me, but, but then, okay. So could you say, fuck you? I don't, I won't do what you tell me. And then hunt the, the animal that was prohibited to you by virtue of your totemic affiliation. Well, apparently not, according to them, right? So then what is it that's enforcing that? Well, I guess my, you know, I mean, it goes back to points that you've made already, but, you know, my sense is one way to think about this would be there is uh, a, there is something like the transcendent that is operative in this and all other societies, which sometimes will coincide with people explicitly tell you you can or can't do, but can simply be something that operates without any direct enforcement from an authority figure because it's simply part of the kind of structure through which you apprehend reality. And so, you know, there are ways that may gradually shift, but the point is that there are all sorts of constraints that they themselves admit are present in these societies, and yet they're claiming that they are somehow completely unconstrained, right? That the people living within them are are again able to fully express their human freedom but and and maybe that's so but if if so your model of freedom would have to take account of these other types of constraints that don't take the form of you know the chief uh telling you what you can and can't do right but instead take the form of some kind of transcendental set of values which entail prohibitions and obligations which which impute some kind of necessity to certain 
behaviors, right? Absolutely, and so that's, yeah. and that's like the thing that I find, you know, maybe most frustrating about this book that it, I mean, which again is, I think related to this ultimately kind of, I mean, it's an impoverished version of how power operates. I mean, and again, maybe I'm, maybe this is also a kind of Marxist critique, um, although I wouldn't generally take that approach because it's like, well, where's something like ideology? Apparently mm -hmm. nowhere. I mean, mm -hmm. I guess it's only present in this idea that people today are stuck and therefore they can't imagine their society being in a, any other way. But this idea that, you know, power and constraint can function in other ways than just some specific dude telling you what you can and can't do. Just... Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Well, and it's remarkable, you know, the, so this discussion of indigenous America and particularly they focus in on this figure of Kandi Aronk, who was a, a Wendat statesman and orator. That is mostly in the first chapter, right? And they use it really as like a framing device for explaining what they're doing in the book. And I mean, it's on the one hand, it's wonderful to see them excavate this person and see what he had to say and what was convincing about it, right? Uh, but at the same time, it's an amazingly naive and superficial interpretation of who Kandi Rank was and how that society worked. And they take completely at face value Kandi Rank's assertions that we have no subordination, everyone is free. It's, you know, it, he paints this utopian picture of the society that he's speaking for and they, it, they treat it completely uncritically, right? Graeber and Wengro treat it completely uncritically and they don't stop and ask these questions of, well then how, were, how was compliance obtained? How, how did this society perpetuate itself and how did it obtain certain behaviors that followed the accepted norms and practices of that society? And on the one hand, you can say, oh, well, there, there's discourse, there's mythology. You know, you could look at it from a Foucault point of view, a Marxian point of view. But I was also just thinking, what if someone commits a murder? Like, there's some con there has to be some consequence there. How does that work? And if you read through the chapter, there's like this tiny, tiny little aside where they say, oh, and of course, if someone broke the law, because there were laws, if someone broke the law, the whole clan to which they belonged was held was held responsible, not just the individual. And I said, oh, okay, there's your enforcement mechanism. You impose penalties upon the clan, and then it's the duty of the clan to ensure compliance and conformity upon the individuals. It's not at the imperial level, right? It's not some emperor on a throne issuing punishments. It's down at the smaller level, which, you know, Graeber and Wengro could argue that that's better. They could argue that that's a better way of, of ensuring compliance and conformity in a society at a smaller, more local level. But they don't do that. They just sort of brush over it and take for granted this whole notion that, oh, everyone was just free. And meanwhile, Kandiaronk is an adult male orator. We don't hear nothing from the women, right? The men are hunting, having a great time. The women have the duty of material survival in the form of agriculture, right? There was a very strict division of labor between men and women in these Iroquoian societies. And to the point that it was like extremely shameful for a man to even like pick up an agricultural implement because that's women's work, right? 
we never hear nothing from the women here. We never hear nothing from the captives. And, and, and there's this little aside. They There's this little passing aside where they say, oh, by the way, the Wendat had slaves. <laughs> and they gloss over and say, and it's in quotation marks. It's in scare quotes. And I'm like, wait, you, wait, you just yada, yada, yada slavery. You just yada, yada, yada slavery. I thought that's what we were not supposed to do. So the, the precisely the sort of glossing over an idealization that people have traditionally done with regard to colonial society. This book does like the exact same thing to this Iroquoian society. And it's a, it, it, and it's just, it's very superficial. Yeah. And I mean, so David Bell um, had a sort of review that was, you know, targeted at exactly this point. Um, you know, David Bell, a historian of the French enlightenment, you know, he really, um, I'll, I'll link that in the show notes, but it has a number of like really remarkable claims. Um, and, you know, this has been kind of poured over by other people, so we don't necessarily need mm -hmm. to get that mm -hmm. far into it. But, you know, basically their entire argument relies on this bizarre notion that this one book by Baron Laurentin, um, who was a, a French intellectual who made a visit to, you know, French Canada, and, you know, had dialogue. I mean, and, and so there were these sort of um, native leaders and orators who would have kind of back and forths with the French colonial authorities, right? And this, this is an actual known thing and it's, it did happen. Um, and so this Kandariank was a real person. And, you know, it's, it's plausible to imagine that, that at least some of this was taken from things that he said, right? But Mm -hmm. uh, that that these dialogues that you know he's the the character is given the name Adario right but um basically it's it's plausible to imagine that at least you know and, and this isn't an unfamiliar phenomenon right if you read Montaigne's on cannibals you know there's sort of a dialogue with these visiting natives um from Brazil that he quotes from and then this gets filtered into the tempest right that there's sort of this um mm -hmm. these sections of on cannibals that then get, you know, translated into English. And then, you know, if you read parts of the Tempest, they're basically kind of cribbed from this. So, so this idea that there are sort of natives who have some kind of dialogue with the European, those words are then, of course, translated and interpreted, and then relayed by European authors, and then kind of circulated and become influential in various ways. Now, this is obviously, um, it's obviously a thing that happened, right? And it's, and it's, mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. so on that level, fine, right? Like, I think it is true that some of these native peoples who engaged in dialogue with Europeans had a sort of influence on European intellectual history. Like, I think that's, I'll, I'll take yeah. that point. Um, but they go far, far further than that, right? Mm -hmm, so yeah. essentially, they argue that, you know, 18th century France was sort of this, you know, it was like the most hierarchical society imaginable in human history. And that basically prior to being exposed to this, these kind of harangues by this, um, this native orator, Kandaryank, you know, it was essentially inconceivable for the French or other Europeans to question these um, hierarchical social structures, right? Mm -hmm. And so essentially the argument is that, you know, this entire strain of enlightenment thinking comes not not just generally out of kind of being exposed to the other ways of living that they saw on display in these native societies they encountered in the Americas, 
But, you know, which again, I think I, I would accept the point that, you know, Europeans encounter with other kinds of societies in the Americas did have a, an influence on political thought, like fine. But their argument is much more narrow and kind of bizarre, right? It's that this particular native orator who, as you said, you know, is it's not only treated as if Laontan's transcript, supposed transcription of him is this kind of, you know, completely accurate and pellucid representation of his thought, but also that his own account of his own society is, is left completely unquestioned, right? He's taken to be just mm -hmm. kind of offering mm -hmm. a sort of neutral objective description of his own society. And so, you know, <laughs> basically th their whole argument ends up, and I mean, the thing I find strange about this is that, you know, it makes their whole argument rely on a much more specific and tenuous set of claims than it would have to rely on, right? Because they have to yeah. claim that this one guy, you know, who's, but who's also, you know, and again, it's kind of interesting that, you know, they put the reader in the position of, well, if, if you question this, then you're somehow questioning the sort of cognitive sophistication of, of Native Americans, and therefore you're racist. But, you know, they themselves make this one guy a sort of stand in for the entire Weltanschauung of sort of North American societies, which, you know, is an interestingly kind of Orientalist um, approach. But, it, it, it's, it's a very odd aspect of this book that it, it makes the argument kind of stand and fall on this extremely weak and tenuous attribution, right, of all of these ideas to this one person who is taken to be, you know, wh whose ideas are taken to be both, you know, a fully act based on a fully accurate and, and sort of an objective description of the society he comes from and are taken to be and that his ideas are taken to be you know, represented in a in a completely transparent way by this French author who transcribes them. So it's a, it's just a very odd argument. To me. It's it's very weird. And there were there absolutely were several points where I kept asking myself, why do you feel the need to do this? Like they build up. To be totally fair, they build up this idea of the indigenous critique that there were sort of various indigenous intellectuals who all made a sort of similar consistent criticism of Western society or European, European society, I think is how they phrase it in the book. And that this, they say at one point, this was a shock to the system. This was like such a dramatic challenge to the thoughts and assumptions of these Europeans who were completely steeped in hierarchy and, and deference and that they and that this was this this created the enlightenment i mean they basically say the enlightenment is the result of this indigenous critique sort of shocking europeans and and as part of this they make these subsidiary arguments that that when we see indigenous characters speaking in european texts that this is real accurate representation of their ideas and arguments and that they are not merely sock puppets, right? This is not merely a case of Europeans projecting their own thoughts onto indigenous people. It's authentic, right? And I was like, why, why do you need to argue that? Like, why is that so important? And for one thing, they cite this book, uh, I think it's like Let Letters from an Incan Princess. They cite this book by Françoise de Graffigny where she actually literally invents a fictitious Incan princess and then has her write letters commenting on European society. And I'm like, uh, I think you have a problem here. You're citing as an example, 
a, a counterexample where where this is this is truly a European author making up uh, an indigenous character to speak to a European audience and and voice these critiques and maybe maybe you could say that Graffigny was getting some of those ideas from Garcilaso de la Vega and these other books that you know describing indigenous America but they don't they don't make that argument they don't demonstrate that they seem they, again it's this sort of sleight of hand like if you question the authenticity of this indigenous critique you must be a racist who thinks that indigenous people are stupid further the other corollary of it is that they have to argue that these ideas of democracy and equality have no background in Europe right and that and that it was inconceivable that Europeans could think about democracy or equality before this indigenous critique kind of hit them in the face. And they and they make this assertion about Rousseau that he was getting this idea completely from his response to uh, you know, the Jesuit relations and these stories about indigenous people. And he was just completely steeped in this totally, you know, courtier hierarchical world. And of course they don't mention he was born and raised in Geneva, in a republic, right? A republic that was governed by debate among citizens. Like if you want a model of what they're imagining as a good society, there were ancient republics in Europe, in the, the, in the ancient classical world, in the medieval Italian cities, in Switzerland, in the Swiss cantons. And that was fully part of the debate too. And you say, oh, no one was thinking about democracy. No one approved of democracy. What happened to Machiavelli, you know, uh, and the discourses on Livy and, and this whole elaborate theoretical effort to describe how a democratic republic could function and last through time. Like this, all of that is totally thrown in the, the trash can, which is fine if they disagree with it. They can argue against it and tell us to forget about it, but they just assume that their readers have never heard of this. <laughs> yeah. I mean, another, right. Another passage I, so they quote a, a passage from the, you know, the dialogues, one of these passages they attribute to Kandariank um, that's about money, right? And to imagine one can live in a country of money and preserve one's soul is like imagining one could preserve one's life at the bottom of a lake. Money is the father of luxury, lasciviousness, intrigues, trickery, lies, betrayal, insincerity, all of the world's worst behaviors. Fathers sell their children's husbands, their wives, wives betray their husbands, brothers kill each other, friends are false, and all because of money. In the light of all this, tell me what we Wenda tell me that when we Wenda are not right in refusing to touch or so much look at silver. And then they follow up by saying, "For Europeans in 1703, this was heady stuff." I mean, this is <laughs> this sounds completely nuts. I mean, this this text could have been written by all sorts of like Renaissance satirists. I mean, it's almost like a tissue of of sort of cliches by this time. And then the other thing that I find weird that they would claim that is that. You know, Graeber, if you go back to debt, you know, he's influenced by someone like Karl Polanyi, right, with the Great Transformation, where, you know, th these kind of economic histories that show that, that the rise of the money economy kind of in this period and its, its sort of institutionalization and, and the, the, the sort of the way that it allowed for the rerouting of all of these kinds of productive activities through the state and allowed for taxation and deaths to be enforced and things like that. Like at the period when this was written, you know, according to people like historians like Polanyi, who Graeber is heavily reliant on in his previous book, 
I mean, the, the money was still a relatively new thing in many parts of Europe itself, right? Like you had basically, you know, particularly in sort of rural peasant societies, you know, this was not, this was not a period in which money was simply this kind of unquestioned basis of all economic activity, right? That there, there were plenty of internal criticisms of money that preceded oh, this yeah. by hundreds of years. And that's partly because the sort of money economy was was just evolving as a thing at this time. Yeah, and the love of money is the root of all evil. I mean, that's in the New Testament. Right, exactly. Yeah, New and it, right, it has all of these... <laughs> These Christian, um, I mean, again, that that whole passage you could imagine as a kind of Renaissance Christian satirist. Um, yeah, yeah. So it's, which is not, to, it's not to say that Kondiaronk necessarily didn't say that. I mean, maybe he did. We just can't know for certain. And and it's bizarre that they're staking. They 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 speak as if they're staking their whole argument on this claim that this was authentically what Kondiaronk really said. And that Europeans would never have thought of this otherwise, that this was completely new to them. Like, why? And to me, it almost seems like it's this rhetorical strategy to to build up this sense that their argument is the argument of the indigenous people. And, And anyone who rejects their argument is on the side of the evil European imperialists, right? Right, exactly. And that, you know, and that that's, I just think a really, um, I don't know, it, it, it just strikes me. I mean, they, you know, and they, so they make a big deal about their citation of indigenous scholars, right, who have, who have made these claims previously. And, you know, it, it, it strikes me as a kind of, you know, a couple of white male academics <laughs> sort of trying to, um, you know, trying to play this game of, um, legitimating their authoritativeness on on the basis of these citations, right? That oh well, you know we're mm-hmm. we're here just deferring to like indigenous women scholars, and so you know yeah. some it's 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 just this very odd game where you you know they're 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 attempting to in a sense gain a kind of intersectional currency for their <laughs> for their argument by um, by kind of buying these pretty questionable interpretations hook line and sinker yeah yeah and and you know i haven't read those works that they cite and maybe they're persuasive but it seems it's so strange how they they weave that into their argument and yeah it seems to be playing this kind of rhetorical role of setting up a binary and saying we're the good guys and on the other side of the ledger they talk about Rousseau, and as i said they don't i mean i guess this page has kind of become infamous because it's so glaring where they, they completely ignore that he was from Geneva and that there was this history of contention in Geneva between elites and the populace and, and around the, the idea of, of democracy and a republic. And, and then and, and they, they smear him. They say that he was, he was engaged in a project of sleeping his way to the top of the court. I was like, excuse me, Rousseau was a weird, shy, awkward guy who completely flunked. He was a disaster at court. He couldn't network worth anything. He was he was private, awkward. He ran away from court and he married a laundry maid. He married a laundry maid. Like he is more or less the opposite of this caricature that they present that he was this decadent aristocrat or decadent courtier, right? 
trying to sleep his way to the top of court. And I was like, this is not history. This is an American's mythic caricature of Ancien Regime France, right? That they were all these decadent aristocrats who were all, you know, kissing the king's butt. And it was all, and they were, and they were eating, you know, cake and pastry all day. And, and they were just luxuriating in their own uh, decadence when that, you know, I wouldn't want to live in pre-revolutionary France and I don't approve of it, but there were intense debates in pre-revolutionary France around civic republicanism, right? And the idea of civic virtue and self-sacrifice and patriotism, it was totally enmeshed in that world and that language. And Rousseau had a certain degree of success, not because he was sleeping his way to the top, but because he presented arguments that appealed to that kind of audience. Right. And I think, I mean, I think this is related to what's sometimes thought of as like Occidentalism, where basically what they do is they enact mm, this kind of critique mm. of, I mean, it's not exactly Orientalism, but of of the, the way that the West has construed other societies, right, as sort of rigid and inflexible and incapable of critical reflection and of, you know, kind of, you know, monolithically dominated by a single ideology, and, and so they, you know, they devote a large part of the book to sort of troubling that in various ways. And I think are, are often successful at, at doing that, um, as, as we said earlier, although I think their, their premises are flawed. But what they then do is kind of apply this model actually back. So we see them with 18th century Europe, right, implying that um, this was somehow, you know, this extremely tumultuous continent in this period where you know you already had significant differentiation of of political systems obviously you had just undergone a several century long period of kind of religious tumult which often brought with it you know questionings of previously assumed hierarchical structures around the church and so on that it was somehow just the space of like total lockstep ideological conformity that could only be shaken up by this kind of, you know, this appearance of this, this other who, who challenged it with this, this set of alternatives that it could simply not have conceived otherwise. So, you know, in a sense, it kind of inverts the, uh, some kind of narrative of colonialism where, you know, first you have this kind of rigidly hierarchical, ideologically conformist society that's incapable of imagining any other possibilities. And then, you know, this one person comes in and introduces Christianity or civilization or science or whatever, and, you know, causes them to radically reassess. So it's, it's a weird just kind of narrative of which, which accepts this, you know, which, which I, I again think that their own premises should should actually be an argument against accepting anything like this narrative, right? Because if we're supposed to assume that people, um, you know, at all times in all places have sort of experimented with different kinds of different forms of social organization and so on, you know, it, it seems like they're saying that that's true, except as of like the 16th or 17th century in Europe, when suddenly everything yeah. just became the same. I mean, it's yeah. it's very odd, or it became the same for a little while, except then the French Revolution happened. I mean, it's yeah. it, it it. I mean, and it's like and it's like they think on one hand that this, I guess, the 17th century was stuck until the French Revolution, which was the result of the indigenous critique, and then somehow we're stuck today too, and so we're mm -hmm. kind of like the ancien regime French, and so we need a healthy new dose of this critique, 
I mean, it, it just, it's, it's extremely confused. And I would say also kind of at odds with a lot of their other arguments. Um, yeah, well, th this brings to mind something. I had a classmate in grad school, Divya Cherian, who would repeatedly ask in frustration, why is it that Europe has history and the rest of the world has culture, right? If you suppose if history is dynamic and culture is sort of frozen and, and ahistorical. And I always thought that was a wonderful question. And, you know, that clearly a lot of people still are sort of trapped in that mindset, right? History, uh, history happens in Europe, it's dynamic, it's dialectical, the rest of the world has culture. But to me, the implicit response then is uh, everyone has history, right? Every, all parts of the world have evolving societies and events and ruptures. Uh, but, but yeah, it seems that maybe Graeber and Wengro have done this full inversion, right? Where everybody else has history, Europe has culture, right? Europe is right. trapped <laughs> in it, its mythology as opposed to, you know, I guess my inclination, maybe this is easy for me to say, but my inclination is to say, well, everyone has history, but a lot of history is how societies perpetuate themselves and how they create frameworks of thought and mythology and ritual that uh, maintain a social order, right? And maybe there's some sort of even-handed way, right? There's an even-handed way of looking at the West and the rest, right? But this, this, this book is... This book is not there. <laughs> it is quite uh, occidentalist in, yeah. in that way. And I mean, so Rob Henderson has a review, which he concludes as follows. The book approvingly states that before the spread of agriculture, humans were not thoughtless or superstitious automatons, helplessly reacting to external stimuli and trapped by the status quo or the circumstances of their culture. Our ancestors exercised choice about how they organized their societies. Some opted for more egalitarian structures, others favored hierarchy, others switched between the two orientations, depending on weather and food availability. Extending this logic, it's possible that the humans who built and maintain the current structures of society are not thoughtlessly upholding the status quo either. That is, we're not stuck in a system of hierarchies and conspicuous inequalities. Rather, humans today might also be exercising choice maintaining and appreciating our current institutions and governments, however imperfect they may be. It would seem odd for the authors to claim that the humans of the past were politically self-conscious while humans of the present are automatons. What if people witnessed what anarchy looks like and decided they prefer to live in states? If so, then perhaps it's time to reconsider the belief that humans ever got stuck. So, I mean, I guess this is one articulation of this set of criticisms. I mean, I think, you know, that, that sort of sums up the the weirdness of this argument, right? That it it has to posit that the very things it denies are the case for all of these other times and places are are in fact the case for us, right? And yeah. I think the, you know, part of how I there's a part of this that seems to be related to this kind of notion of capitalist realism or certain ideas that were particularly current like 10 years ago, right? Where the idea is that, well, because we can't imagine other kinds of, you know, the problem is, and this again, I think is a very Graeberian point that there's supposedly, according to him, there's this kind of impover impoverishment of imagination of different social possibilities. And so the responsibility of anthropology as he sees it is to kind of awaken people to the wide range of possibilities that exist, right? And thus kind of return us to the supposed prior state in which allegedly other societies existed, right? Which is just kind of, 
seeing the smorgasbord of, of forms of social organization mm -hmm. that you can sort of pick and choose from. And so, you know, I think we've kind of gone yeah. over why that, that itself doesn't seem like a very convincing model. But then I think there's also an interesting question here, which I'd be curious to get your take on, which is, you know, is this like to what I, I think I was once maybe more persuaded by this idea that we're somehow stuck or this kind of capitalist realism thesis. And I don't know, for various reasons, I'm, I'm kind of less, I'm, I'm kind of less convinced that it is at all useful for understanding what's going on in the world today. But I'm curious what you think about, like, just the, is there something to the idea that we're stuck and that this is related to a sort of impoverishment of the imagination that prevents us from glimpsing alternative social possibilities? Yeah, that's a great question. I think that my, I'm certainly inclined to agree that there is a kind of a sclerotic state of, of political thought in, let's say, the past 25 years or so. But that's a hard point to demonstrate. It's one of those things where I thought, uh, I'm inclined to agree that that's true, that we are stuck in some broad sense. But I would like if this book made me more persuaded of that than I was already. Whereas it seems that they kind of take it for granted. There's sort of this atmosphere of frustration, right? Which partly was expressed in the Occupy movement, this kind of just expressive demonstration of dissatisfaction and this attempt to create a little kind of alternate utopia in Zuccotti Park or wherever. I think that they sort of take for granted that, that climate of opinion, you could say, among the sort of middle brow and upper middle brow intelligentsia and that they they draw on that but I don't think that they make the case right and it's I and to go back to the the seasonality for a moment I feel like there there's there's so many interesting implications to it where they say oh look at how some societies cycle through different modes of organization in the seasons and that means that they are that this keeps alive the sort of reflective sense of possibility and play as opposed to an alternate way to interpret it would be to say their material mode of subsistence is different at different times of year and they create different social organizations that accord with those different material <laughs> modes of subsistence whether it's hunting or gardening or whatever and you could equally take it as confirmation that people fall into habits that make sense practically and materially, and then they develop myth mythologies and rituals to explain the, the fact that they have fallen into these habits. And for myself today, you know, I, I get very frustrated when people come up with these rationales about why we have things like the Electoral College which A, are not accurate and B, like don't matter. It's like the, these are so irrational People come up with mythologies in order to rationalize why things work the way they do in their society. And I don't think that's always necessarily a bad thing, but it's a prevalent part of human society. It's sometimes good, sometimes bad, and you have to really grapple with it. And you have to make people self-conscious, like, okay, you're drawing on a mythology here in order to rationalize why your world works the way it does. And that that's difficult, you know, and when I do myths of the month, 
they get many different sorts of reactions and a lot of people like them, but a common reaction with some of them, like the enlightenment and capitalism, a very common reaction is that people say, no, you're wrong. And then they just restate the myth. They just say, they just iterate it again as, as if that was a refutation. And I, I, I guess ultimately what I'm just trying to say about Graeber and Wengro is that they don't seem to, they don't seem to see how, how myths are woven into society and how they also are connected to and reflect our material modes of production, right? Then the relationships that we've developed around our material modes of production and that tackling them and getting people to question them is very difficult. And it seems more like they're assuming that certain people already don't like our mythology and are already aggravated with it. And they're sort of offering an alternative idea of mythology, right? Here's an alternative myth of the Enlightenment. It really came from the Wendat. It didn't come from Rousseau, right? Would you say so? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah. And I think that is, I mean, another another point that's kind of interesting is, I mean, the book has been really, um, has re- had a very positive reception. I, mm-hmm. I remarked on Twitter at one point that it must be the only book that has blurbs from both Nassim Nicholas Taleb and Noam Chomsky. <laughs> but so it, nice. I mean, so it's, I mean, that's always interesting to know, right? For a book that claims to be kind of disrupting all of the standard narratives, it's been extremely well received by basically the entire kind of, you know, left half of the political spectrum, even though as, as we were talking about before, it's, you know, it really kind of pulls the rug out from under any kind of Marxist analysis by, you know, basically decoupling mode of production from social organization or, or political organization. And it, I mean, it's, it, I, I suppose one way to think about it is Graeber was sort of this architect, ideological architect of, of Occupy. Obviously Occupy was, I mean, it, it's complicated to assess its legacy in its, in its immediate practical. I think it's, it's fair to say it was a failure in, in the terms that Graeber imagined it, which are the terms of forging a kind of alternative mode of, so a a sort of, um, you know, creating these kind of nodes where alternative forms of social organization could be experimented with like that. Mm -hmm. I think if, if we want to say Occupy was successful, we'd have to think about how it brought about certain, a certain heightened attention to things like inequality, but that, that was basically incorporated into kind of, you know, a sort of stand a sort of mainstream left liberal walking back of of certain like neoliberal assumptions and you know support for austerity policies like that i think we could say like occupy probably had something to do with that shift um although to what extent it reflected you know a a a larger um disgust with the sort of third way politics of of the previous couple decades versus to what extent it kind of made that discussed more more politically efficacious and relevant I don't, I don't know how to assess but you know the way Graeber thought about it was it's not you know explicitly as as I understand it it's it's not about having any particular political demands about you know tax rates or you know bank regulation it's about creating these encampments where new social forms can be experimented with and thus demonstrate to people that another world is possible, right? And I would say in that sense, it was definitely not successful, right? (laughs) Because it, I mean, first of all, nobody has really taken up that aspect of the project, except, 
you know, for that few weeks in Seattle where it, you know, literally led to like multiple murders of, <laughs> of uh, young black men. But, you know, it's so, I mean, to me that it's like that part was clearly a disaster. And that was the part that Graeber was most kind of intellectually identified with. So, you know, in this here, he seems to be pointing to something in a way more ambitious, but also in a way more modest, because what he's sort of seeming to say is like, oh, you don't have to like camp out with some grubby hippies in a public park to, you know, accept the premises of this kind of anarchist volunteerism, because in fact, we can have a society that's informed by those things that's maybe not even that different from what we already have, right? Because we can just uh, keep having complex, differentiated, you know, high-tech society, but it can become more egalitarian because that's what they did in uh, Teotihuacan or whatever, right? Because I mean, yeah. it's like, we've got the whole passage about Teotihuacan, which they describe as having, in, the, in their terms, like abandoned uh, ritualized sacrifice and a sort of priestly hierarchy in favor of what they call social housing, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, conveniently. I I think there absolutely there are two things sort of about the present and the past that speak to what you're saying that when it comes to Occupy, you know, it started with the encampment at, at Zuccotti Park and it was in a public space and the people sat down and refused to leave. And so I think that there's this it it had this eventually it took on this kind of rhetorical power because it made it impossible to ignore the sense of discontent, the demand for public space, right? But it's also significant that it was in a city plaza, not in a workplace, right? There was no proposal to transfer power or control over the process of production, right? Economic production. It was, it was this purely sort of demonstrative expressive event, which uh, I'm not saying is, is bad or unimportant, but it's, I think it's in line with this sort of, this particular kind of anarchist sensibility, right? That the world will transform when we just sort of withdraw and create an alternative model for ourselves and that we don't, we shouldn't be thinking about seizing control of the means of production. Right. But yeah, with the Occupy movement, it's, you know, I, I think it did have an impact like you're saying, but, at, but if I, but if I was a 1955 Marxist, which I'm also not, but clearly there's this counterpoint from the Marxist camp where they could say this is all just performative. You need to be doing what workers did in the 30s, which is sit down in your factory, <laughs> sit down in your workplace and demand control, which it did not do. And it sort of went into this, this sort of, you know, intellectual, iconoclastic intellectual kind of milieu and not into concrete uh, political action. And, and to go back, you know, you mentioned Teotihuacan, which encapsulates a lot of interesting things, right? That Teotihuacan is this city. We don't know a lot about it. There aren't written records, but they built massive monuments, these pyramids of the sun and moon, this monumental walkway. And then they argue something's changed politically. And instead they refocused on sort of social housing for the ordinary folk. And, and again, it seems like this kind of good 
almost, you know, anarchist, anarcho-syndicalist society. And I was like, that's great. I'm, that's wonderful. I'm so glad they did that. But when people go to Teotihuacan today, they go to see the pyramids. They want to see the massive monuments, right? They want to see the, the enormous projects that were built to the glory of the gods and the rulers, right? And there's even this little passage at the end of the book, maybe if I can, if you don't mind me just finding it to read, there's almost this little summation passage they slip in where they give us this judgment about what a good society uh, should look like, right? And what, um, what, what, what is really valuable in a society. And they say, okay, maybe there's this better future ahead of us, right? That we can make a better future. And they say, who knows, perhaps if our species does endure and we one day look backwards from this as yet unknowable future, aspects of the remote past that now seem like anomalies, such as bureaucracies that work on a community scale, cities governed by neighborhood councils, systems of government where women hold a preponderance of positions or forms of land management based on caretaking rather than ownership and extraction will seem like the really significant breakthroughs and great stone pyramids or statues more like historical curiosities. And so there, you know, they're coming down to this value judgment that it's like, oh, having a really good cooperative society or a society where women hold the formal offices, this is what really matters. And forget about pyramids and monuments and that stuff. But, 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 you know, people love the pyramids. (laughs) And I think that there's a lot of judgment here towards the people who built the pyramids, who maybe they were in a really hierarchical society. Maybe there was all this domination. Maybe we can judge them as, as sort of dupes or manipulated by, by power. But you know what? Maybe, maybe they really felt that they were part of something enormous and meaningful, and they built something that people are still amazed by 5,000 years later. Like maybe that has value too. And I'm not saying one side or the other there is right, but it just seems to encapsulate what what we've been saying, that they sort of take for granted that their audience will be amenable to one side and, and not the other, and that they don't have to make the argument that the pyramids were a waste of time, right? That's more or less what they're implying, right? Whether it's in Egypt or in Teotihuacan, that sort of stuff is a big waste and we should just get beyond it. Which, which again, I think is is related to their devaluing of, of the transcendent, um, of aesthetics mm-hmm, right. and their general sense that, you know, again, it, it, it's, um, I mean, even their, their sense of like play would seem to be impoverished in this way. Right. Mm-hmm. Because, yeah. okay, well, surely like the incredible feats that all of these cultures have undertaken for at least partly aesthetic reasons are are remarkable displays of that kind of impulse right mm-hmm. <laughs> towards kind of play and creativity and yet here they're sort of dismissing it which i'd say is also striking in relation to what i brought up before which is graber's elsewhere enthusiastic sort of modernist sensibility right where he mm-hmm. i mean in other words like the, those kind of arguments could be used to dismiss like for example the idea of you know, going to space, right? Which, mm-hmm. you know, he elsewhere sort of argues, well, that, you know, the value of that is its power and potential for kind of expanding the frontiers of the imagination beyond 
beyond its sort of any more immediate practical gains that might come from it, right? And so I think that kind of, just, you know, brushing aside of like the Great Pyramids is, is sort of a remarkable <laughs> um, counter to that argument that he's made elsewhere, right? And, and I think it's a good example of how, again, their idea of sort of play and and so on is, is extremely limited in this, in this context by their disregard for aesthetics, their disregard for any kind of notion of transcendence as having, uh, as having real value to people as opposed to just being sort of something that's instrumentalized to subjugate people, right? right. Yeah. Um, part of why it can be so widely embraced is its ultimate implications are pretty vague, right? It's like, we just have to, I mean, first of all, it, it's very self-flattering to intellectuals. And, you know, it, it, if your argument is basically, oh, we just, what we need to do is not fundamentally change the mode of production of society. What we need to do is open up people's imaginations to other possibilities and help, you know, help get them unstuck from this rigid, you know, framework they all have. Well, that's a very, um, if you're a, you know, if you're an academic or a opinion writer or a journalist, then that's like a, a very, uh, a very nice way of, you know, defining your mission, right? Um, which, which also <laughs> kind of gets you off the hook from being committed to any particular sort of material project in a sense, right? Mm -hmm. Because, because mm -hmm. if, yeah. if any kind of material organization is, is just fine, as long as it preserves these freedoms, and as long as people mm -hmm. can sort of imagine the possibility of, and thereby, you know, make possible the the potential for change when it when it becomes, I mean, not even necessary when it when it you know when they're whatever in their uh, whimsical sort of <laughs> playful approach when they, when they decide to just uh, reorganize things for the hell of it, then they can do that. Um. So and I, and in a way, I think these are kind of opposed, right? That that passage you just read does seem to apply, imply there are certain particular things that we should be aiming for as a society, mm -hmm. right? And mm -hmm. our society is failing insofar as it's not doing those things. Whereas at other points, it seems to be, well, the problem is just that we're stuck in this one way, right? There are many possible ways of doing things that would be fine. The bad thing is to get stuck in just one way. So those seem like not, mm -hmm. not entirely, I mean, or perhaps even opposed arguments. Yeah, they didn't work out these tensions, right? And they don't, I don't think that they grapple with the potential trade-off, right? That people, people sometimes do give up freedoms because they see, because they think that they will get something greater, more inspiring, more beautiful, right? If, if they agree to cooperate in a system that is not entirely individualistic, you know, and that does not, that where some people are subordinated to others. And I know that they, you know, they've made this whole elaborate argument saying that's not necessary, right? Saying that you don't have to give up freedom in order to have a sophisticated, large scale functioning society. But then, but then at the same time, yeah, there's this tension where on the other hand, they seem to be saying pyramids, statues, those things are, are needless because they are expressions of hierarchy. They're expressions of subordination, right? But what if people want those things? <laughs> you know, what if people want to be part of a grand project and realize a grand vision? What if they want to build a massive tomb to memorialize their king for whatever reason? I guess, I mean, I judge people all the time. We all do, we all judge people all the time. But I try as a historian to be as non-judgmental as possible and say like, look, maybe, Maybe people really think uh, their king is awesome, 
or maybe they create the fantasy and the myth that their king is awesome because that allows them to do things and say things that are meaningful to them. Right. And this, you know, again, I think goes along with um, the point about constraints, right? That they seem to imagine that, or they don't seem to imagine that there can be a kind of dynamic and product, productive relationship between constraints and freedom, right? Which again, mm-hmm. I think is yeah. is a good illustration of why their their notion of play is somewhat impoverished because they can't imagine that um, the the constraints governing, you know, perhaps quite rigidly a, a certain social system could also be productive, right, in, a, in an intellectual sense, in an aesthetic sense, etc. Right. Um, and that, yeah. you know, and, and again, that, and to me that, I mean, it makes the metaphor of play even kind of nonsensical, because all of the forms of play that we know about are, and, and can observe in the world are made possible by often quite rigid constraints. Yeah, yeah. And that there's, you know, all these things, like we've been saying, the interplay between the individual and the collective, uh, the role of, you know, the, and there is a passage where they discuss how in some societies there can be oddballs, right? People who are extremely eccentric, and then they can be then accepted into the community as playing a sort of prophetic role or a jester role, which is is valid enough. I mean, I, 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 will take, I'll give them the benefit of the doubt that that's an accurate description of these societies, I believe in Africa that they were talking about. But, but, but at the same time, it, that seems to speak to what you're saying that, well, yeah, there's eccentricity, there's rebellion, and then societies evolve and adapt to, to harness that or to integrate it into the workings of their world. And there's this sort of dialectic, this push and pull dialectic of the distinctive individual and the community and its its practices and its rituals. So it's interesting that it, it seems like a, in that way, it seems like a very unanthropological book, right? <laughs> it seems to run counter to the, the image that most of us have of, of anthropologists, which Graeber probably would embrace, right? He would say, of course, uh, I'm overthrowing the paradigm, the I'm rejecting the the assumptions of mainstream anthropology, but I guess I would say, well, uh, you know, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater, right? There, we can gain insights about yeah about the push and pull, the give and take between individuals and collectives, and how how collectives perpetuate themselves by in, in different ways accommodating or grappling with rebellion, dispute, disagreement, change. And I mean, it might be worth, uh, we can maybe start wrapping up, but revisiting this, you know, central to this whole argument is this idea of these three primordial freedoms, which they say for most of human history were simply assumed, right? And they, they say that these are the freedom to move, the freedom to disobey, and the freedom to create or transform social relationships. So, I mean, I say it a couple of ways where you know, the, and again, the, the, their sort of key example of these is these um, North American indigenous societies, right? But then, as I pointed out in their own descriptions, they actually refer to all of these constraints, right? And then you mentioned others, like such as, you know, the the sort of gendered distribution of tools and, and sort of productive activities, right? Um, which, you know, okay, so... 
the freedom to disobey, like, what does that actually mean? Well, the way the examples that he gives are basically that if a chief in one of these societies tells somebody to do something, again, they can tell them to go get stuffed and there's no enforcement mechanism, right? But then what's going on when people uh, perceive there to be and follow an obligation to, you know, hunt and not hunt certain animals based on their totemic affiliation or to use or not use certain tools based on gender and so on and so forth. Like there is something that is apparently not generally disobeyed right? <laughs> in that context. And yet they're, they don't seem to be able to account for what that is or how, or how exactly that works. It just, it, it's like they just brush, they kind of just brush by it without any comment. Um, after having claimed that these are these kind of hyper libertarian societies where people can just kind of do what they want. So that, that was just kind of to revisit that point. Um, did you have thoughts about these other two f- or other thoughts on that or these other two freedoms, the freedom to move and the freedom to create or transform social relationships? Yeah, I mean, well, some some of it we've already we've already talked about that their societies can have very sophisticated ways of obtaining compliance uh, that aren't necessarily just yeah a guy sitting on a throne giving you a command. And I I give them the benefit of the doubt that adult men in a society like the Wendat or the Osage have a great degree of individual freedom, but that I don't agree with the the value judgment that they lay over it, that that is the natural, correct default way for societies to operate. And that there's, there's something inherently wrong with societies that, that are, that have more of a command structure. Uh, You know, if that's their opinion, that's great. Like, fine. I respect that, but they really don't argue for it. They just, they just cast that as the natural correct way for society to work and, and like, leave it there. And as for the freedom to move on that point, it's an interesting one to think about. And obviously there's discussion in the air about open borders, right? right freedom of movement today. So it's an interesting one that they, that they put in there. But when I reflected on it, I thought, well, this is another instance where they're not taking account of the importance of the natural environment and material survival, right? Because yeah, sure, the Osage can get up and leave, because they're on the Great Plains and there's all these food sources just out there. If you're in Egypt, you don't have any freedom to move. You get up and leave, it's the Sahara Desert. You're not going nowhere. You are stuck because you are tied to that society and that social order for providing you with food and water. You can't just get up and leave. So. I, I, that was, uh, to me, a glaring instance of um, not, not taking into account how nature and our relationship and our survival dependency on the natural environment changes the kind of society that's possible, right? And irrigation dependent. And there's this other argument that they briefly allude to and don't discuss, which is the Carl Wittfogel argument in Oriental Despotism, the idea of hydraulic society, where he basically argues that Societies that depend on irrigation need a lot of organization and a lot of management and command, whereas societies where in in different environments where you get year-round rainfall, in in that environment, someone can just pick up and leave and and go survive in the fields or the forest, raise some animals. You can't do that if you're in Egypt or Mesopotamia. And so in Wittfogel's argument, that means you get a more authoritarian and bureaucratic society. 
And I think there's a lot to that argument. It's been criticized. And of, of course, there are many exceptions and caveats, right? But it just struck me that Graeber and Wengrove seem very cavalier in just ignoring that, that basic factor of how we live and how societies live. Yeah. And I mean, the other thing I thought was odd was, I mean, so again, you know, they do refer to even, even within the context of these kind of idealized North American societies, you know, they do refer to certain constraints, right? Like, okay, you can go attach yourself to some other band, right? But you're also kind of limited in which members of that band you can attach yourself mm -hmm, to yeah. by this kind of shared totemic system. So this kind of freedom to move, even in that context, proves a little bit more complicated, um, as yeah. which would also relate to the whole freedom to create or transform social relationships, right? Like if you're operating in this totemic system, like I just don't, I don't see how either of those are, you know, make sense in quite the way they seem to be phrasing it there. But, you know, the other thing that I find odd about this is like, if you just think about any sort of broad consensus of anthropological evidence, you know, essentially in, in non or pre sort of market societies, you know, the sort of central organizing structures tend to be those of kinship, right? Mm, and yeah. so, okay, you might have a certain kind of freedom to move, but that's highly limited by your sort of embeddedness in certain kinds of kinship networks. And so the totemic affiliation would be sort of an example of that. But, you know, generally people, I mean, what do they mean by freedom to move, like freedom of the whole band to move, freedom of individuals to move? Like it's, it's because I mean, okay, there's a kind of freedom in the sense that like there isn't a fucking border control or something like that. But there are other limiting, I mean, you brought up the environmental ones. I would say there are also other social limiting factors, right? Um, like why... <laughs> If you go back not that far in history, the worst punishment often thought of as worse than death was exile, right? Exile. Why? Well, because exile basically detaches you from your entire social and kinship network in which your life has sort of meaning and purpose. And so, you know, it's, it's maybe kind of hard for us to imagine what exile or banishment means, right, in those contexts where it's, it's really conceived of as literally a punishment that's kind of an alternative to or equivalent to death because it is social death, right? Mm -hmm. And so this freedom to move just seems extremely abstract. And when you try to get down to particulars, it kind of falls apart because it's actually pretty hard to imagine. I mean, other than just some kind of trivial idea that like, oh, you didn't have border guards or, or something like that, which I mean, even there... You know, you had you had walled cities, you had, you know, territorial distinctions in terms of who was basically accepted as the legitimate, you know, users of certain land and who wasn't like these things all existed. So yeah. this idea that freedom to move was kind of this absolute thing taken for granted is just seems very odd because as soon as you try to pin it down, particularly, I mean, OK, so like the Mongol hordes, I guess they had freedom to move. <laughs> right but but what does that mean like what what are they trying to say i just i don't i don't really yeah. get what it what it means specifically yeah well and you mentioned the phrase social death and obviously that recalls uh or or i believe it's orlando patterson yeah if I remember yeah right. yeah mm -hmm. uh the fact that in many societies slavery is he says it's it stems from social death and that it is rooted ultimately in being 
removed from your original social context and hence losing the ties, the identity, the, the rights and privileges that came with being a member of a certain society, right? And when you're taken out of your society, you become like an object, you kind of lose your humanity, right? So I think that the their whole discussion of these freedoms, it's it has the same sort of problem as their discussion of, of myth and politics that they, they don't seem to be taking of account of how people are deeply constituted by the society in which they exist, right? And how they imagine themselves and operate in the world is, is deeply uh, defined by that. And that it's not so easy to just operate as this free floating citizen of the world, intellectual, <laughs> it's not like everybody is Ibn Battuta, you know, not even Ibn, Ibn Battuta is Ibn Battuta, like, uh, you know, th it, it, they're taking almost a kind of, you could say like a God's eye view that like, we are these intellectuals who have somehow risen above the constraints of our society and can evaluate everything from this massive distance. And they're not, either they don't take account of, or they don't really appreciate how people are, are shaped and attached to their particular social world, right? Like, like as you said, such that exile is seen as a kind of, the next thing to death, right? The next thing to death. And sure, maybe in many societies, you were free to leave if you wanted to. That doesn't mean that the next place you show up is gonna take you, right? You're a foreigner, you're an outsider. It, things may go very poorly for you when you just cross over into some other nation or city or tribe, whoever it is, you're an outsider. Right. Yeah. And it's so, yeah, it's, it's very odd again to see that, that claim sort of abstracted from ideas about kinship and so on. I mean, and the way that kinship is kind of your, your fundamental social sustenance, right. In these, mm, these yeah. kind of pre or non-market organized societies. And then, I mean, the other, you know, as I said, I think this one about the free, I mean, I think this, the freedom to create or transform social relationships is maybe the most fraught because again, you know, as I said, well, that in, in these societies they conceive of as the most free, they also point to all of these constraints that are both obligations and prohibitions that have to do with your, your sort of totemic clan and how that, you know, defines who you can and can associate with. And I mean, presumably if what they were claiming was true, was true of the society they present as like the most free or the most fully expressive of these freedoms, then people could just say, fuck this, I don't like this totem, I'm gonna go over to that one. I mean, maybe they could, I don't really know much about it, but like, if so, then what does it mean that apparently most people didn't because uh, these totems, I mean, if, if, they were, if, if they were a consistent thing that you know defined many aspects of this culture over a long period, Apparently, most people weren't just like deciding to jump over to the other totem clan every every couple of years or whatever. No, and that's a very it's a very kind of consumerist model of and how you would imagine people operate. That it's all this kind of free individual choice. You know, I think I'll pick the the eagle clan or the the otter clan or whatever. It doesn't translate so easily. You know, people are not all out there just self-constructing their own identity as a matter of taste and individual choice. Maybe they can manage sometimes, but I don't think it's that common. And, uh, and most people don't want that. I mean, most people don't want to have this free floating identity where I can, I can just 
recreate uh, imaginary societies at a whim. People want affirmation from their community, their kin group, their language group. I know I'm making generalizations here, of course, but I, I think they're I think they're justified. I think they're reasonable generalizations. And this also just brings up, I shouldn't get into it because it's it's too weird and complicated, but the, they they also in the first chapter, they make this reference to people who had been taken captive in different indigenous American societies. And they claim that almost invariably people wanted to stay with the indigenous society and not go back to European society. And they even cite this thesis, which I looked at, it's very good, it's a wonderful thesis by this guy who was a librarian, I think at LSU, about people who were taken captive on both sides by Europeans and indigenous people and whether or not they fully integrated into the society or left and went back to where they came from. And their characterization is just false. This, this is not what the thesis says. The thesis says people went both ways. And the crucial thing that made the difference, whether they stayed in their captor society or returned, was the age at which they were taken captive. And if you were taken captive as a child before puberty, it was very likely that you would fully enmesh yourself in the new society and stay there for life. Whereas if you were already something of an adult, puberty or post-puberty, you would not, and you would more likely want to return to your birth, your birth group. And when people asked why, why did you choose this way or that way? They didn't say, I think this society is superior to this one. They were not comparing one civilization against another. They were talk, they talked about their personal relationships their marriage, their parents, their brothers and sisters. It was a contest between personal emotional ties. And if someone chose to stay, very often it was because they had already married and had children in that society. So it's like you're saying, it was not like these people were political philosophers. I mean, maybe some of them were, I'm sure they were brilliant people, very intellectual, but they were not weighing which society in the abstract do I think is better? They were weighing what personal ties have the strongest claim on me. Right. And so, yeah, again, weirdly, I, I think I would say that they're, it's as if their idea, I mean, which is just so bizarre coming from an anthropologist <laughs> that sort of yeah. they're, they're just kind yeah. of assuming this like market logic by which you you make this kind of abstract value comparison <laughs> and thereby determine mm-hmm. which society you want to be part of. As opposed to, as you're saying, doing so through these kinds of evaluations of, you know, that, that are that are rooted in your kinship affiliations, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, then the other one that I found odd is like about this idea that people had the freedom to, to change social relationships, right? Or to um, create or transform social relationships. I mean, I guess part of what they're suggesting, I mean... I think they're also pointing to something like, you know, revolution or the way that like societies like Teotihuacan or they argue this kind of evolution of North American societies that ended with, you know, what Europeans found when they arrived in North America, which, you know, was was also, they argue, a kind of disaggregation of this larger kind of priestly and hierarchical civilization into these sort of more autonomous bands that still had certain cultural links with each other. 
I think it's very odd to claim, okay, if there was some sort of revolution or some sort of massive shift that took place then, it just seems odd to claim that that's reflective of a freedom. I mean, presumably there were things about that that were difficult, violent, conflictual, right? That, you know, I mean, again, because this is not something they have particularly strong evidence for, it's largely archeological and, and derived to some extent from myth. They don't, um, like, I, I just don't know what it means to claim that. Like, did the fact that the French Revolution happened mean that there was a freedom to transform social relationships with which the French revolutionaries took advantage of? No, I mean, I think they would argue the opposite, right? That that there was not that freedom and then the French Revolution somehow brought about that freedom. But the point is, it's as if they're claiming the kind of, you know, in, in all of these other times and places you could, I mean, or, or maybe it's the seasonality example, right? That you could just kind of seamlessly move from these different, between these different forms of social organization without anyone getting upset or trying to preserve the previous one. And this just seems, you know, it, it seems um, historically extremely problematic to say the least. <laughs> yeah, well, and I think you're bringing up a really important issue that I'm not, I'm still sort of thinking about, partly because I just read some of debt as well. And it's this, what is the role of violence in their philosophy? And there are points in the book where they discuss sort of a kingly or heroic societies like outside the big urban civilizations, right? So they argue that you had these riverine urban societies in Mesopotamia, and then you had these so-called barbarian kingly and heroic societies around them. And there are points where they describe the violence of sacrifice and and it's uh, it can be very shocking, but they never they never really address that as a philosophical issue of like can can violence be a legitimate part of the society you want to live in like at all ever or are we just assuming that violence is always bad and and that and that states right authoritarian states always necessarily work on violence it seems as if that that seems to be kind of the background assumption in debt, in Graeber's book, Debt, that if something is backed by state action, that always just means violence and repression. In this book, they, they discuss and break down how there are different modes of exercising power over other people. And in their view, sovereignty or the exclusive control of violence is just one of them, right? And then there are these others of control of knowledge, chariz- personal charisma, and so it seems more nuanced in that way, but, but there's never a grappling, right, with like uh, these cities in China that they describe, which seem to have been authoritarian, they had palaces and temples, and then suddenly those systems broke down and the temples were torn down and things became egalitarian. Yeah, okay, that happened, and probably a lot of people got killed in that process, right? There was some equivalent to a guillotine probably going on here that were they were people ritually killed this elite what yeah what do they what do they think about that is that okay like is that you know are we talking about violent revolution it it seems a bit different from Zuccotti Park right and I I think that it's left as kind of a mystery don't you think so like what is their sense about violence in history yeah, absolutely. And again, it, I mean, it, in other words, the implication of this idea that I suppose prior to relatively recent in history, people had this freedom to transform social relationships. 
uh, you know, again, it's it's pretty ambiguous what that freedom would mean because I suppose one way of reading it would be that everybody would just be fine. Everybody would be cool with it, right? <laughs> and and so <laughs> yeah, in that case, right. in that case, there would not be presumably violence, right? Because everybody would Better just be like, all right, win. exactly, right, right, right. And so you know that just seems like a sort of ahistoric. It's it's just unclear again how you concretize that notion of this freedom existing because. I think it's fine to say that that's a fundamental freedom, right? And and then and then you would have to argue something like, well, you know, being able to change the social organization when it ceases to work might necessitate some bloodshed every once in a while. You know, that's basically like what Jefferson said, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and so, you know, that's a legitimate position right that that the mm-hmm. need to to alter social relations is something that is a value that you know is worth shedding blood for sometimes but yeah as you said they don't really confront that aspect of it and so it's it's kind of unclear what the freedom actually means in in concrete terms because it's clear that when these kind of social transformations have happened they've met significant resistance at at many points in history and yeah. You know, that's, yeah, and- I mean, I mean, take like the early, let's, maybe here's an example, like, what about the early Christians, right? So they do this thing of, of creating a new, I mean, they, they're pursuing these freedoms, right? They're creating and transforming social relationships. They're creating these new um, social formations, which are quite, you know, radical in some ways, although not, not in a way that, you know, necessarily violently threatens the power structure. And yet, you know, they're of course met with significant violence on the part of those in power. So, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, that's... Well, and, the, <laughs> that's and they that's, shrewdly, yeah. the Christians, it's an interesting example because the Christians shrewdly transform violent suffering into sacrifice, right? That they present it as a sacrifice of the body for the sake of the spiritual mission of, of Christ and the church. And, uh, you know, when social revolutionaries of one sort or another, like you said, they, they tend to meet resistance, right? There are people with interests at stake who don't want transformation. And that can mean violence as a practical tactic, right? It can also mean that you use violence as a, a ritual act, a symbolic act to show that you are uh, releasing yourself from the old order. And I think that that's sort of, you know, guillotines have this uh, symbolic charge, right? There's still this symbol of revolution today. It wasn't, it became much more than just a practical way to lop someone's head off. Yeah, I think um, violence seems to be caught up in both ways, practically and symbolically. It's caught up with this question of transformation and overthrow of of the world order. And uh, maybe they just didn't want to get into that. (laughs) They didn't want to get into that debate, right? About revolutionary violence, which is very, it's it's caught up in in Marxism. Well, I just remembered and dug up this passage that, that I think might be interesting in relation to this, which I had been thinking about in a different way actually kind of in relation to my my points about how they don't really have a very they, they clearly are resistant to kind of theorizing about human nature right so that was kind of the context in which i thought about this passage initially but 
it relates to what you've been bringing up here. So they say, quote, people have an unfortunate tendency to see the successful prosecution of arbitrary violence as in some sense divine, or at least to identify it with some kind of transcendental power. We might not fall on our knees before any thug or bully who manages to wreak havoc with impunity, but insofar as such a figure does manage to establish themselves as genuinely standing above the law, in other words, as sacred or set apart, another apparently universal principle kicks in. In order to keep him apart from the muck and mire of ordinary human life, the same figure becomes surrounded with restrictions. Violent men generally insist on tokens of respect, but tokens of respect taken to the cosmological level tend to become severe limits on one's freedom to act violently or indeed in most other ways. So, I mean, there are a couple of odd phrases here. First is this, people have an unfortunate tendency. So apparently they're describing a really significant factor and sort of constraint, I would say, which at least apparently derives from some sort of intrinsic human nature as they're describing it, right? And they're just saying, oh, it's unfortunate. I mean, maybe they're saying perhaps people are like this and it's it's sort of unfortunate that they are. <laughs> and then further down, they say um, another apparently universal principle kicks in. So they're, they're sort of observing some way the power functions here, which I would I would say is somewhat at odds with their... I suppose attempt to, on one hand, assert that certain things are are sort of natural and therefore primordial, right? And and then yeah. at the same time to to some extent counteract their seeming assumption that a lot of these kinds of shifts in power, at least theoretically, can occur without violence, right? Yeah. Well, this is you're pushing all my buttons, Jeff, <laughs> which is good. Which is good. But I think that that passage is in their discussion of sovereignty, right? The idea that there's one mode of exercising power is through control of violence. And they seem to be kind of positing that there was sort of a primordial formation of like the earliest sovereign kings, right? And that basically they were violent thugs who demanded things from people. But then a sort of ritual system was built around them to contain, right, to contain and channel and delimit that power of violence, um, which it's very speculative, right? Unlike a lot of the book, the book sort of shifts between very empirical modes and very theoretical and speculative. And I would say, yeah, that is possible. Like maybe their their, uh, description there is plausible, that that's where kingship comes from. It's just sort of thuggery that then gets ritualized and hence integrated into a system of taboos, right? And they use that example of the Natchez, the Natchez great son. And I thought, well, yeah, that could be. But once you acknowledge that there are these sort of human tendencies, right, these common tendencies, well, then there's all sorts of possibilities then that maybe people create kings because they want a focal point of power, ritual, symbolism. They want someone, and you know, my 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 contrasting hypothesis, which is also speculative, would be more along the lines that the king is uh, a, a sort of sacrificial object. It's someone that you anticipate is going to die, and you're going to give elaborate offerings and build elaborate tombs to memorialize 
this specially uh, symbolically important person. And then in anticipation of that, you give them tributes and you surround them with ritual and ceremony and majesty in anticipation that they're going to be sort of your society's offering to the afterlife. You're going to send them off with in a, a grand ship or a tomb. And that, that it's more that the ceremonialism is universal to kingship. All kings are surrounded by ceremony and taboo and ritual objects. Not all of them have that much real political power. There are a lot of kings who are like, yeah, I'm basically just ceremonial, right? And I think that they acknowledge that sort of in a moment when they're discussing this king in Fiji and they say, well, there's this ritual where he wakes everyone up in the morning and he's the focus of attention. And then the state is the sort of attempt to extend that ritual power and primacy further and further. I'm like, okay, well, yeah, that's, uh, that's an interesting idea. I think that sounds plausible, but it doesn't seem to really fit with this story that you just cited, right? Where the, the fundamental thing is that they are uh, practitioners of violence and terror. And then the ceremony comes after that to sort of contain it and delimit it. Right. Yeah. And I'm, I mean, I'm very convinced by your version of things and, and it, it's really similar to the version that comes out of like Rene Girard's thinking, right. Where, <clears throat> but it, but is also grounded in all sorts of, you know, if, if you look at how um, in various like parts of South America, when you had a captive who you're going to sacrifice and cannibalize, you know, basically they would be treated like a, like royalty, right. They would be, mm-hmm. they would have a certain period in which they were, you know, living in incredible luxury and given <clears throat> all of these um, goods and comforts that, you know, m- that most people in the tribe did not enjoy. And then, you know, at the end of that, they're, um, they're sacrificed. So, you know, this, and this was observed as a phenomenon by like some of the earliest explorers, right. And, and, and this, you know, and then there, there are versions of this in Africa too, right. Where, you know, you had these, these cultures in which you basically had these scapegoat Kings. If you, if you read um, Roberto Colasso's *The Ruin of Kosh*, like the the central narrative that the title derives from is is about precisely such a society where basically you had these kings, but the kings were basically always sacrifice victims in waiting, and that's partly because they could be, you know, if there was some disaster or misfortune, then you know you had this ostensibly sacred and valuable person who you could sacrifice and thus you know obtain re you know regain the favor of the gods or whatever so so this is you know pretty well well observed but i think you know what what you're suggesting also relates to several points you've made which is that they seem to assume that everybody's default attitude is this kind of you know again it's this fuck you i won't do what you tell me thing (laughs) right that that basically this is this is the the sort of you know primary humanity right that we all have and then sometimes we're kind of duped into into um, surrendering our sort of personal agency to to authorities that manage to establish themselves as above us, right? But you know, I think what one point you've been making throughout this discussion is there's a completely different way of thinking about this, which is that yeah, there is one part of 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 humanity that that seems to respond in that way to authority, but there's also a very easily observable other part which seems quite primary and fundamental because of how frequently it exhibits itself and is sort of voluntar- apparently voluntarily taken up by people which is that yeah. people actually want kings they want they want transcendent beings to which they can subordinate themselves right i mean i've just been yeah. listening to um 
this Martyr Maid podcast series on Jim Jones and the People's Temple. And, you know, if, if you just think about cults, like if you think about Jim Jones, if you think about Scientology, you know, you basically have people who are, I mean, particularly coming out of the 60s, you have these people who are living in the state of apparently absolute freedom, right? Where they've already told their parents, fuck you, I won't do what you tell me. They're saying that to society every day. They're doing drugs. They're having sex with whoever they want, et cetera, right? And yet, what do these people seek out? Well, many of them seek out these voluntary authoritarian structures in which they can insert themselves, right? In which they surrender their agency to this madman, (laughs) Jim Jones or L. Ron Hubbard or whoever. And I mean, this is an extreme example, but, you know, it's it's a good illustration of how, right, or right, in the most extreme instance. So, you know, it, it seems like these two tendencies towards a kind of rejection of subordination and a kind of seeking of subordination are both always present. Right. And so yeah, if we want to yeah. if we want to think about, you know, again, that passage seems to just the passage I just read seems to suggest, well, people can just be kind of easily duped by these sort of unscrupulous, violent figures who, for whatever aspect of human nature that they're not really willing to try to explain or provide a theory of people are kind of impressed by big tough guys who engage in arbitrary violence. And okay, I mean, I think there's probably something to that. But I think it's also you have to link that to this, this larger issue, which is that people do have a tendency to an unobservable tendency to rather than free themselves from subordination, actually actively subordinate themselves, right, and find meaning in that subordination. Yeah, yeah, I think you have to grapple with that. And I probably was already biased because as I, as I mentioned on another occasion, uh, I really, really love this book, The Ritual Process by Victor Turner, which uh, I was told to read because I researched on Freemasonry and I was told, well, you've got to read some ritual theory. And I'm like, oh, fine. So I read The Ritual Process and I'm totally ready to not like it. I'm very skeptical about anthropology and and then I read it and it's amazing. I love it. And a lot of this point which I, that he makes that I think is so brilliant and clarifying is that people have conflicting impulses, right? People do, there is this very common tendency to want uh, e- equality, to want a sense of unity, to merge yourself with an undifferentiated group and to feel part of a sort of undivided human community uh, and and to want to act out that equality. And then at the same time to also want hierarchy and to want clear leaders and to, and to want demarcation, right? Demarcations between the genders, between the generations. And Turner argues, I think to me, persuasively to me, he argues that a lot of ritual coronation rituals, initiation rituals are about reconciling these conflicting impulses and making it, it's squaring the circle, right? And a lot of, uh, he talks a lot about coronation rituals particularly and how the initiate uh, or the, the, not exactly initiate, but the person who's going to be crowned is often put through ritual humiliation and they're reduced to a kind of ritual object. They're kind of led around. Uh, they, they can't talk, you know, and even, even in the British coronation, the monarch doesn't say nothing. They're just brought in. It's the, it's the archbishop, the priestly figure who anoints them with oil. They're treated like an object, 
before they're then allowed to actually take up power and become the ruler. And, and so I think that in trying to account for why people go through these weird elaborate rituals, he ends up, I think, hitting on something that's very clarifying, which is that you don't have to think of people as naturally egalitarian or naturally hierarchical. There are values and there's attachment and attraction to both. And a lot of the stuff that societies do is about trying to to do both and to mediate and transition between them. Right. And I mean, what's odd is in a way, I think that as a sort of evaluative framework helps make sense of a lot of their evidence more effectively than they make sense of it. In other words, (laughs) partly because, as you've said, they, they sort of um, despite presenting a lot of evidence that would would support that kind of larger thesis, you know, which might might pertain to hu- something like human nature as well as human culture, you know, it, it ends up being clear that they they think, you know, again, in terms of these freedoms, that you know these freedoms are primary, and therefore whatever imposes on them is some kind of artificial kind of secondary imposition, right? And that. Yeah. You know, and and that ultimately just seems odd insofar as, you know, that they also in in some parts of their argument kind of want us to be able to see, um, you know, for example, they, they want to counteract the kind of noble savage notion of hunter gatherers as being necessarily these kind of egalitarian horizontal societies and, and allow us to imagine them as, as having their own rigid hierarchies. Um, so, you know, they don't want to argue that in that sense that one is primary to the other, but then, but then it seems like they kind of do, right? So, so it yeah, sort well, of restores know, something like that myth. Yeah, they may not exactly say one is more natural than the other, but they certainly make it clear that they prefer one to the other, right? And, and there is, like, like I mentioned, this weird talk about sort of essence, the human essence is to be political is to be a free thinking, free acting political actor, right? So um, they, yeah, they, this is one of these philosophical points where they, they, they never quite clarify exactly what their position is. So we've been going on for a while, uh, perhaps yeah. we should wrap up, but do you have any uh, final, final remarks about this? Just that, you know, I think uh, it's a valuable book and it was, it's sort of ripe the situation was right, I guess, because there is so much more that we're learning about prehistory and about societies without writing. And a lot of it does go against received assumptions. So uh, I think that they they kind of took advantage of that lack of a new narrative, a new mythology. But as we said, there are, <laughs> there are all kinds of problems and biases and limitations in it too. And uh, I would just say, you know, thanks for having so many questions and letting me go off. Uh, <laughs> oh yeah, no, thank you. Repeatedly. And yeah, it's it, as I, I mean, as I suspected, um, it's been a, it's been a great conversation. And again, I think, you know, I, I thought of you in relation to this book because of the way you frame your podcast, but, but particularly because of, I mean, some of my favorite episodes of yours are these myth of the month episodes mm-hmm. where you've sort of, um, take, you know, you've sort of taken on a lot of, of major assumptions um, about things like, capitalism and you know it's 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 always a very salutary uh approach and i think you know i i would encourage those of my listeners who are 
listening to this to check out Sam's podcast, Historians Planning, but particularly those episodes have stood out to me um, as as relevant to kind of the, you know, both the, the approach of this book, but also maybe some of the the assumptions it makes that we're sort of trying to trouble. Yeah, yeah. And and thank you for always supporting historian explaining. And I love outsider theory. And I, I loved your discussion of Road to Wigan Pier, which is a, rec- a recent one. And as I tweeted, I said, Road to Wigan Pier by Orwell is the most important book for the 21st century. And I think some people thought I was being sarcastic. <laughs> and I'm actually, I'm actually not. Right? Literally really, true. Really is. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. Anyway, pleasure, and we should uh, collaborate again on Great. some other, some other interesting, you know, shared shared concern at some point. Wonderful, wonderful. Thank you. Cool.